Hey everyone, thank you for tuning in to Spilling the Truth Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Bluefish Design, now in Scottsdale, Arizona. Bluefish Design is a full-service marketing ad agency. They can work with you on your logos, your branding, your interactive and digital media, whatever it takes to take your company to the next level. Look them up online, www.bluefish.com, that's B-L-U-F-I-S-H.com. And now for today's episode. Today's episode, we have a very special guest, Oscar Avila. Oscar is a local sommelier who's actually heading off to Burgundy to get his master's in business of wine. Uh, we have a great episode. We sit around, drink some awesome wines, and we talk all about food and wine pairings. We talk a little bit about global warming. We talk about what it takes to get a master's in business of wine. Uh, it's a really fun episode, so we really hope you enjoy. Um, be sure to check us out on YouTube. Check us out on Instagram, Facebook. Uh, if you enjoy the YouTube page, be sure to be sure to shoot us a subscribe. And thank you very much. Enjoy. Missed out the other night. Oh, I know. And uh, <laughs> what was funny was that he was sending me pictures at the same time Todd was sending me pictures. And I was like, what? Come on, guys. My problem is that I had already gone to a wine tasting that night. Yeah, I know. Because I told when I was texting John, he's like, oh, he has to do this thing. I'm like, okay. I was like, and then when you got there, you told me, you're like, hey, I think Damien's still going to come. I'm like, he should. I was like, we have plenty of wine. I was like, we need help. <laughs> yeah, I found out about it so late. And- <laughs> Part of it, too, is that once you just run the gauntlet and you get home, I didn't necessarily want to go run the gauntlet again. Oh, uh, no. I Dude, it's so inconvenient. When we go to New York for, like, Vin Expo and then Skernick and uh, this last year we did Shotsky, I was so over wine by the second day. Uh, I was just over it. That's funny you say Shotsky in my mind. I pictured the ski with the shots on it and everybody was doing that with oh, wine. No, like, no. What? <laughs> I would also be over that as well. <laughs> yeah, it'd be a long process and a very, very, very long day. Have you ever been to one of the uh, big global events like Vin Expo overseas or no. Vin Italy? No, my first one is going to be uh, Pro Wine in Dusseldorf because it's that, part of the program. So that is, to me, is the best global wine event you can go to. It's the one that people take it the most serious. It's not the general public, you know. Italy is a shit show. That's like, what Italy, Especially yeah. the last day they open it to the public. Most of the producers just peace out and leave. I mean, you'll see just empty booths and you're like, uh, can I try the wines here? Um, just, just pour. Just people are, yeah, people are house. spilling stuff on the ground. People, you hear glasses breaking on that last day. And it's four days, which is kind of long. You know, when you go to Provine, it's only three days. It's all global buyers. The booths, you actually have time to sit and talk to people. Then Italy, it's just a madhouse. I Plus, mean, everybody's all hopped up on all the amount of espresso that you possibly can do while you're there. And that the city of Dusseldorf is actually very easy to get around. The city of Verona has outgrown Excellent. the amount of people that come there. Yeah. Like, you can't get a room. When, when the bus, we actually stay up in Trento when we did it, and we bus down. It's an hour drive in the morning. Once you kind of get into the city where you're getting where the expo is, it's about a 45-minute wait in traffic just to, like, get close to the building. I mean, it's brutal. That's got to be a brutal drive back. Yes. Uh, that's why we always grab, grab beers for the way back. You'd always hear in the back, because drinking wine all day long. It's funny how much 
a beer saves your life with those things. Like when I, the first, the only year, cause you can only do it one year. The year I did Pinot Camp in Oregon, the first day we did the whole, we did the actual event. I was like halfway through the day, I was like, I would literally kill for someone to give me a course light. Yeah. And we ended up at um, Van Duzer and we did a seminar there called Catching the Great uh, White Whale. Like they based it off, uh, what is it, Dickinson's book? Uh, Moby Dick. Moby Dick, yeah. yeah. And at the end of that, we went up to his tasting room, which is a beautiful view. You can see like the whole valley. And he had a cooler filled with PBRs. And <laughs> I legitly wanted to kiss him because I was like, you understand what this is like. Like I would kill for a beer at the end of those things. Same thing like when Todd and I went to New York to go to Skernick. It's like, what do you want to drink? I was like, cheap beer. Was that the Barolo one? No. So Skernick is, the, is their grand tour. Okay. So they do it in New York every year. And essentially, it's like the entire New York market, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Connecticut. Um, we actually stumbled like profile upon Profile one or portfolio. Yeah, their entire portfolio. Dang. Um, we stumbled upon it the first year. So we flew out to go do Vin Expo in New York. And the first year we went, we, go, we fly out to New York and our first night was free. So we go out to dinner. We went to uh, Blue Hill down in by Washington Park. And go have dinner. We're sitting there trying to pick out wine. And I just told Todd, I was like, oh, just pick up something cool, a white and a red. And I left uh, to go use the gentleman's room. And then I came back and the general manager comes up to the table and he's like, are you guys from the industry? And we're like, yeah, how'd you guess? And he's like, nobody orders these wines (laughs) unless you're in the industry. He's like, these are hand sells for us. You know, that's why Skernick ended up buying and starting their own distributor in California because it was so difficult for sales reps and people to sell the wines around the country. And a lot of people in California wanted their wines, but the distributors were like, I'm not carrying that shit. Like, I, nobody knows what that is. It's so, it's so tough to sell. Their portfolio is a lot of high acid whites, a lot of champ, grower champagnes. I mean, it's a great portfolio. That's the Brundlemeyers from there. Yeah. I imagine a lot of those. What are those? Uh, what's a, is a special club is the grower champagne? It's not the only grower champagne, but Special Club is a conglomerate of... Okay. The, the, the one the that we have up there. Yeah, yeah the Mousse. Yeah, yeah Mousse is one of them. I don't know if that was on Skernik or not. Yeah. Yeah, mm. so they, I think, I don't think anybody else imports Special Club, at least not to my knowledge. The only Special Clubs I see are the ones that come out of the Skernik portfolio. Yeah. But Special Club is, I believe if I'm correct, I'm probably wrong, like 28 producers. Essentially, to be considered a Special Club is you have to test it three times. <laughs> wheel spinning yeah my ESL is kicking in uh, you have to insert your wine three times you have to do press juice you have to do uh, pre-secondary fermentation and then you're bottling and then if all of them pass then you're allowed to produce a sp- uh, special club is that somebody like part of the club do they all get together and taste each other's juice then pre-fermentation and they go all right, we all unanimously agree that's good, that's good, that's good, and then that one sucks. Okay, that's no longer allowed. And mm-hmm. but then also all these guys produce champagne out of their own label. Yeah. So you know, Mark Hebert has his line, and then he has the special club, and you get like yeah. that special bottle, which is like a little like wider with a comes in that cool little box. Yeah. 
with a little emblem on top. Yeah. Not that Special Club is better than like just their individual producers. From what I understand, the reason it came about is because they wanted to compete against these big houses. Yeah. And these prestige, you know. The Doms, the Cristal, the Yeah, the Cristal and all that stuff. And so they were like, we're very, very small production farmers. So let's just get all our eggs in one basket. And this is our prestige. This is our. You got to compete. I mean, that's what it comes down to. So out of all these United States events you've been to, because we're going to talk about Texom here in a minute. Yeah. So you've been to Pinot Camp, you've done the Skernick tasting, you've done Texom. What's been your favorite of all of them? Like, what's the one that was like, wow? We should we should probably also introduce Oscar here for, to begin, so just to uh, hop in for what he does and everything. So everybody, Oscar. Oscar, <laughs> why don't you uh, tell everybody what you do? <laughs> uh, you guys just picked me up in front of Home Depot. But... Well, obviously. I mean, no, no, no. you, you uh, were out there drinking Boone's Farm. We figured we'd get you on here. You knew something right? a little bit. Yeah. Uh, no, so I'm originally from Mexico City, uh, but I grew up in Phoenix. I pretty much consider myself a local. Kind of fell into the industry working in restaurants, and my dad's a huge wine aficionado. Yeah, I saw and, that the other night. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, decided to pursue it, and I'm here now, and... In about 10 days, I'm going to be living in France, getting an MBA. So that's got, awesome. got you on the last couple of days. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because I've known you now for a while, and you've been at Atlas for, what, three years? Yeah, I did three years, and then the year before that, I helped them out a little bit uh, with a couple of events. Okay. But yeah. I mean, kind of like what solidified that wine movement going forward. And or was it your dad? <laughs> it just, uh, it was funny. So I graduated from ASU with a criminology degree, which... <laughs> Obviously, I'm using. And then I was going into my master's program. I was applying to for my graduate program. And a job fell on my lap that involved wine. Essentially, the way I looked at it was, I can come back to my master's if I really want to. I was like, but I kind of want to try this out. I've always enjoyed working at restaurants and the hospitality industry, the beverage industry. So dove right into it and haven't looked back since. Um, <laughs> and, funny how that works. And, you know, you work at a place called Atlas Bistro, which is... One of Arizona's only BYOBs. Yes. And in, in a place like California, every place is a BYOB. Same thing with Vegas. Vegas, everywhere is BYOB. Arizona, we don't have a lot of them, and we have a lot of people that have second homes here. A lot of people have huge wine collections. I mean, wine collections that are just insane ridiculous. quality, ridiculous. Now, you get a chance to drink all these wines on a regular basis. You've probably drank better wines in one week at Atlas than most wine people drink in their entire lifetime. I think there are nights at Atlas that we drink better wine than anyone in the United States. Yeah. Easy. I was working next door at AZ Wine, and there were nights I got to drink better than anybody else. And I'm like, I can't believe yeah. these I people mean, are bringing these next door. You drink wine like you're a Chinese billionaire. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> well, it's just like you... Mixing you, stuff together. You, you said it perfectly. It's just people have second homes here. It's significantly cheaper to build a 30,000 square foot cellar in Phoenix, Arizona, than it is to do it in... LA, New York, Chicago. So there's a huge collector community out here. BYOB laws in Arizona are very weird. Yes. So that's why there's no BYOB restaurants. Atlas Bistro is one of the few BYOB restaurants that is also a fine dining restaurant. Atlas Bistro is definitely like a very unique place for this city. There's a couple Asian restaurants. You know, you got like Mm -hmm. Hana Japanese and there was the... Basil and some basil and pasta on 90th and J or whatever. Yeah, but Seekong by night or whatever. I think they closed, but that Rathery's place, Jocko always loved that place too. Yeah, Seekong. <laughs> I think Seekong actually got a liquor license. Okay. Yeah, but then also like Chula used to be BYOB, but then they just recently got a liquor license. Um, 
there's uh, that French cafe, like in Scottsdale. I think it's like a really basic name, like yeah. Cafe Mercy or something. Is it in other states, they're BYOB and they can also sell? Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. so that's crazy because like out here, you can't do that. <laughs> it's mean, like New York, it's, it's crazy. Some of the restaurants that we've been to, what they don't allow is you can't bring any bottle that's already on their list. And they also like limit you on the amount of bottles you can bring. Yeah. You know, whereas like at Atlas, we get people that bring in like 15 bottles. Yeah. You can't really do that like in Per Se or EMP in New York. They limit you to like two 750 bottles and then that's it. And their corkage is astronomical. It's usually what, 50 bucks a bottle at those places? New York is like average, has to be like $70. That's crazy. California is probably around 30, 40. Organs at like 20. But at the end of the day, it's just, do I want to pay 1500 yeah. or do I want to pay the $70 corkage? I mean, we yeah. all, we, we've all worked in the wholesale business. We know what wine goes for. We know what yeah. the wholesale costs are. And we know how restaurants mark up. And some places go as high as 4X yeah. over wholesale. I mean, yeah. you sell somebody a wine for $100 a bottle. They put it on their list for 400 a bottle. Whereas I can go to retail that and buy it for 150 get charged my $50 corkage fee, and I'm still saving $200, yeah. which is so nice. So out of all the crazy wines you've had there, is there any one that's just completely stood out as like the holy shit, holy grail? 2004 uh, Coche Merceau. It was my first Coche, and it was mind-blowing. Life-changing? It was like, I don't want to drink anything else. <laughs> if I were to die I'm that night, I guess that's a thousand dollar bottle. <laughs> yeah, it's and how long? Probably about two years ago, maybe. Uh, yeah, guess the about two years ago. And two thousand four, so it wasn't that old. You know, we talk a lot about people that overage wines. Everyone thinks the longer I lay it down, the better it's going to get. That wine wasn't that old, really. Fifteen years. Yeah, so it wasn't, and it was great. Um, so this is a great question because I was actually talking to a chef friend of mine. And she went to Spain and came back and brought some bottles from Spain. And I know the bottles that she brought back. And uh, she brought back a Rota. And I had Rota ones. I had the 07 and the 05 in my cellar. And I opened them both and drank them. And I think she has something around the same age. And I told her, I was just like, you should just open it. And, And to her, it's like very intimate. It's like. I went to Spain, I went to Rota, I had this awesome experience, I had awesome wine, and then this is the only bottle I brought back, and she's very, like, scared to open it. If you go too long, it's disappointing. It's going to actually hurt even more when you open it up, and And it's toast. Yeah, yeah, so I was talking to her, and she was saying, she's like, I just want a special moment, and I tell people all the time, I was like, you know what's a really special moment? Tuesday. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, totally. like the, the second yes. you open the bottle it's special night also because totally, yeah. you just opened up an 01 rota yeah it was like tuesday is a really special day because it ends with a y and you woke up <laughs> but pe- people don't get that you know they, they want to overhold stuff we did a party that was a 21 and over party where each couple had to bring a bottle that was 21 years or older and I'd probably say half the wines in that room were rubbish. We had 30 wines that showed yeah, over, up? Yeah, over 30 wines that were over 21 years old. It and was, ironically, the two best ones, in my opinion, were those mid-90s, that right at 21, all off of like the tops of Napa. Because I don't think anybody brought a French one. Actually, I really don't think anybody brought a single French one. Because the lynch bags we had was the previous cellar clearing party. I know. I know. I see your face. Joa- Joanna brought... 
uh, French white that was really unique that was over 20 years old. Was that the, but there was a Rioja white. I actually still have that bottle. Yeah. But regardless, you're right. People should just pop the corks and drink them. You know, throw a party yeah. around them. You know, we've talked about throwing a party we call the right occasion party. Now, there's your right occasion. <laughs> Bring the yeah. bottles. And I like that. The right and occasion it's party. Funny, it's not even like a layman problem or a collector problem. It's there's collectors that I know who don't want to open their wine because they're like, oh no, let's hold on to it for like five more years or whatever. And same thing on a layman, like one of my good friends, like his his brother and his uh, sister-in-law have wine that I told them, I was like, you should probably drink all of this, like right now. Like we should just open all of them. <laughs> just that old? <laughs> no. But, no, but it was just like same thing, like my friend who went to Spain is they went to Napa and they're not huge wine drinkers, but they drink wine and they had this very intimate, awesome moment at this particular winery and now they have like a very sentimental attachment to that bottle. So it's very hard for them mm. to be like, I don't want to open it. And not to mention also, sometimes when people open it, even if it's rubbish, they kind of give it a free pass in their head. They're like, well, it's not that bad. Hey, Oscar, try this. Do you, what do you think of it? And you're like, and you don't want to tell them it's oxidized or it's over the hill or it's there. You're like, oh, it's okay. Yeah. You know, it's, or you got to kind of play the game when you work in the restaurant business, I'm sure. And people are opening up certain things. But God, I mean, I've had so many rubbish wines that have just gone way too far. I had that same thing happen to me where I visited when I was like 21 years old. The first winery I ever visited had the same last name as my buddy that was with me. And I bought a bottle and I saved it for like 12 years, 13 years. And he moved out of state and I was like, I'm going to save this bottle until he comes back to visit. And he came back like 15 years later to visit. We opened that and it was oh, so atrocious. <laughs> I mean, and you know what? It hurt. It hurt my soul because I saw that bottle every single day sitting wait. around waiting. I'm like, I can't wait to open that with my buddy. I can't wait to open that. And when we finally did, we cooked this huge dinner. Let's do it. And it was like, oh, my God. And <laughs> I get a new one. Yeah. I mean, I guess it was. It did leave a memory. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's not yeah. the wrong memory, but it's not exactly what you were hoping for memory. <laughs> and nowadays they make wine to drink. You know, yes. wines made 20, 30 years ago, you had to maybe age them a little bit longer. Yeah, old Barolos when they weren't using French oak and you had to sit on them. Otherwise, same thing with Bordeaux, same thing with, you know, a lot of these classical regions. And so now like Barolos were macerated for like three months too or something versus like the 15 some, days now. Yeah, I mean, yeah well, it's well, something crazy. Plus, you got to remember that they have computers hooked up and analytics all hooked up to these tanks and they know exactly when fermentation ends to move it over here so it doesn't sit too long. They can stop it. They can keep the temperatures exactly. If, if fermentation, they want to ferment it at this exact temperature for this many days, they could do that. Where back in the day, they didn't even have air conditioning. They just threw it in a bin and just let it go and just hopefully it was good. And if it wasn't, eh, hold on to it for 10 years. Yeah. yeah. It was, I think it was just a salesman technique. Like if your wine is shit and you want to sell it to someone, say it'll be better in 10 years. All right. Cause in 10 years you ain't going to be able to find me <laughs> like yeah. when it's still yeah. shit. And oh, oops, you may have accidentally sold it wrong. And oops, you may have transported it wrong. <laughs> and you know, global warming, we talked, I'm a Barolo junkie. You know that this is, yes. that's my one specialty. That's the one thing that I hold on to. I age, I study and global warming is actually really helping Barolo. Uh, it's one of the few regions that's not being just, uh, really fucked up by global warming. You know, we're going to probably talk a little bit about Burgundy and Bordeaux and what's going on over there with global warming. Yeah, I would say with global warming, probably Barolo and uh, the Mosul benefiting. Yeah, I mean, 
Really? Uh, the Mosul too? Yeah, because one of the reasons why I think Riesling is probably one of the best ageable wines that you could ever get is because before global warming or back when it wasn't as obvious, it took a lot of effort for Riesling grapes to ripen. Yeah. So production was lower. Some years were just a wash. Just it, it was too cold. They couldn't ripen to the levels that they needed to. Now with global warming, every year is a perfect year. Yeah. Every year is like that's Barolo. Perfect. Perfect. I mean, perfect. Perfect. It's not exactly perfect, but yeah. you know, w- with the Nebbiolo grape, it's the first grape to bud. It's the last grape you pick, so it's very susceptible to the bookends of the season. And often, Barolo producers picked early. They picked a week or two too early. They wasn't fully ripe. So then what they do, they over-oak it, they try to manipulate it, they tell you to hold on to it for 10 years. Now, they're picking later than ever before, and with that, the grapes are actually able to ripen a little bit more, and it's make fleshing out the, the final product. And right now, I think the best Barolos ever are coming out of Piedmont. Yeah. It used to be, like, back in the day, you'd have one or two years that were considered, like, possible decade yeah. vintages. Now, you're guaranteed uh, at least two a years. One. Every decade. And now you're getting like half of the decade is amazing. The other half is still drinkable. Yeah. But now like half the decade is like keep it, sell it or whatever. And it's going to be awesome. But yeah, it's interesting to do the global warming thing. Like when I went to, actually it wasn't at Pinot Camp. They actually had a Oregon Pinot seminar here in Phoenix. I asked that question. I was like, how is global warming affecting growing in Oregon? They said, you're going to see two things. You're going to see less valley fruit. It's going to go higher elevation. And you're going to see different varietals coming out of Oregon. You're going to start seeing Syrah coming out of Oregon. That's crazy. And there already is Syrah. Like when I went to Pinot Camp, I had this amazing, amazing Syrah. And I, for the life of me right now, I can't think of the producer, but it was awesome Syrah. Was it in the Willamette or like Rogue Willamette. or Umpqua Valley? It was, no, it was Willamette. Willamette. Okay. Yeah. There's, I think, around 5 to 7% plantings of Syrah in Willamette Valley already. But they brought that up. They're like, you're going to start seeing different varietals. You're going to start seeing higher elevation stuff. That's just the, the name of the game. It's, yeah. You know, you're not going to see Pinot as much because for anyone that knows anything about Pinot grape, it's very finicky. It's very susceptible to the weather, you know. Every time it hurts one winery, there's going to be another winery that's going to be like, yes. I'm sure the Canadians are going to be like, wow, we can start planting some more fleshier grapes and not just planting stuff like Rieslings because it's now warming up up there. Or like upstate New York. Upstate New York's always been known for really high acid whites. Any reds they do are thin. They're kind of, they're easy drinking, but there's not a lot of body to them. You know, they do a lot of Cab Franc yeah. actually in upstate New York, but it's always a little wimpy. That and the states that don't have wine regions yet, but are kind of close to it, the Idaho's, Montana, those places are going to start producing some fantastic wines because it's cooler there. I'm intrigued to see what happens with, you know, like California being the main place of America you know, as it keeps warming up, how much more can Paso do? You know, you just keep going warmer and warmer climate grapes. You're going to run out eventually. Same thing with, obviously, the Napa Valley floor is going to change drastically. They're going to end up with 20% alcohol Zinfandels coming out of Paso. A port in Paso <laughs> is going to be amazing. It's going to be yeah. the new Portugal. <laughs> What's yeah. funny, actually, there's a good question for you since you've, you know, done a lot of food and wine pairings and talked a lot about it. My buddy's doing a food festivals. He does the, um, he used to do the taco festival. I don't know. Okay, yeah. D- yeah David Tida. Uh, talking stick. Yeah. So yeah. He, he's doing a pizza one and we're going to do a, he's going to come on the show and we're going to do, uh, talk about wines to pair with his different festivals. So pizza's easy. Uh, French fries. What would you pair with French fries? I'm telling you. Here's the thing though. 
Like not like what are truffle we talking? fries. We're talking okay, about like steak Belgium. fries or we're talking about Belgian <laughs> fries or we're talking about McDonald's. Like Belgian fries is like triple cooked, perfect texture. Blah 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 blah. I would pair like a Beaujolais with that. If it was like McDonald's, I'd pair like something out of a can. <laughs> no way. Ta- Do you know who turned me on to this? So m- McDonald's French fries and champagne. Unbelievable. K- it is so damn or, uh, good. Canes or Lolo's with champagne. So, so Yeah, fried chicken with champagne is like a huge thing right now. Yeah. Totally. I the will fr- say the fried as a, foods. As a disclaimer, as being a Psalm, I fucking hate <laughs> food pairings. I get it. So yeah, okay. everybody's constantly probably asking you what goes with this, and you're like, dude, Tuesday. That's what goes with that. So their last festival that I've been trying to think about what wines to talk about. He does a donut festival. I don't. You can't do sweet with sweet. I mean, you could, but it'd have to be high acid, like uh, like that. Yeah, anything anything from the Mosul, uh, Alsace, um, Tokai, I think would be awesome, just because of the high acid. Yeah, it's. I wouldn't do port. I wouldn't do sauterne. No, because it becomes coying at that point. Madeira. Would be an interesting pairing with donuts. Really? <laughs> yeah, because Madeira is like significantly more high acid than compared to like port or sherry. I even said to John earlier, I was like, maybe if we just went with a super, super jammy Zivendel or like a Shiraz, because it could be the jelly inside of a donut. Yeah, if I, if <laughs> the I, if I had aspect. to pick like a still wine. It's tough. I was thinking bruchetto, like a good quality bruchetto. Bruchetto would be interesting. Honestly, I think champagne would work. Uh dinner that I did at Atlas years ago with Robert Foley. This is when Josh was the chef there. The dessert he served, uh, he did it with the Petite Syrah. And the Petite Syrah from Foley is a monster. I mean, the Parker Review said, like, we'll talk about this wine in 50 years. He served it with the wimpiest little dessert. It was like a deconstructed cheesecake with, like, whipped ricotta and, like, a little wafer. And Josh was like, this wine is so big, this is going to be, like, the macerated berries on your dessert. And I was like, it's not going to work. There's no way. There's no way. The winemaker hated it. I thought, I thought it was one of the best pairings. I'm still talking about it to this day. I loved it. It was my favorite yeah. pairing of the night. It worked magically. And this is the whole thing about pairing. We're all different. And it was funny. So talking about pairings and talking about all these conventions. So last year I went to Texom and I did a Tokai seminar. The lady who was speaking on it randomly, obviously she's in, it's in Dallas, Texas. I'm going to cut you off for one half second. Are you talking Friulano Tokai, like the old name Tokai? You're talking to- Tokai like the five puntos the, or whatever it is, the, the five Hungarian five puntunios and all that yeah. stuff. Yeah. Okay. Good. So, Continue. I just wanted so, to clarify yeah, so, that. No. Yeah. Hundred percent. My brain still thinks Friulano is Tokai, and the laws changed on that. Like, yeah. Exactly. Seven years ago. Eight yeah. Years it was ago. A, they fought forever yeah. for it. Um, all right. So Texom. Yeah. So she was doing a sweet Tokai seminar. So for those that don't know, Texom is in Dallas. Obviously, Texas barbecue. <laughs> yeah. They go hand in hand. So she went to a barbecue restaurant like the night before, the day before, or whatever. And somehow had the epiphany that barbecue sauce and Tokai would make a great pairing. So she bought some barbecue sauce and brought it back and just had this mind-blowing you know, um, experience. So she then handed out barbecue sauce to all of us. And like everyone in the room was like, barbecue sauce and Tokai? Like, that, that's weird. That's like, you know, whatever. And we get like a little, little... Demi of or a little little ramekin of this and she's like you have to try it just listen don't put anything in your head just try it blindly and see and tell me what you think and it is hands down one of the best pairings i think i've ever had it worked so magically but it made no sense maybe it's the vinegar because 
barbecue sauce have a lot of vinegar, and the vinegar counterbalances like the, all the sweetness in the Yeah, tokai. I don't know. I'm not a barbecue expert, so I don't know what the <laughs> Texas-style barbecue... I know some of them are like ketchup-based, and some of them are vinegar-based. I'm assuming ketchup it's vinegar-based. Yeah. Yeah. I think like Kansas City is like ketchup-based. I might be wrong. <laughs> there's like know. four styles That's of like salsa. barbecue sauces. <laughs> yeah, there's like St. Louis and yep. like all these other there's regions. rubs, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so... It tasted like a vinegar-based barbecue sauce, but it was amazing. It was one of the best pairings ever. That's so and funny. If I ever do like a barbecue wine pairing dinner, I'll know exactly what I'm With picking. Tokai, and everyone's gonna look at you funny too. When yeah, you everyone's gonna it. be like, "You're crazy." Like one of the restaurants I used to work at, I had to do pairings every night, and we did this uh, white truffle risotto. And if you haven't had white truffle, the biggest difference between white truffles and black truffles is white truffles are significantly more aromatic. They're, they're more potent. They're more in your face. Hence the price. <laughs> yeah. That one you guys did that one night. I could smell it 100 yards away for the entire night. <laughs> exactly. It's like a homeless person from Portland. You just, <laughs> you just smell, smell them <laughs> from miles away. And there's some truffle farmer cringing right now. You yeah. said that. They and don't smell like truffles, David. I know. I know. <laughs> and. It was just, it was really rich and it's really hard to pair very rich, potent food. And I had nothing. I was like eating the risotto and I was just like, I got nothing. I got nothing. And randomly I was sitting on this white wine from Northern Italy. I can't remember the producer or even the variety. It was like this weird one that I just randomly bought because I thought it was great. But nobody was selling it. It was very, or nobody was buying it at the restaurant because it was very, it's a very acquired taste. It wasn't like a classical Italian white. It was unique. You know, you, you're not going to get anywhere else. You have to kind of like just take it for what it is. And it just clicked for me. And I was like, that's perfect. I was like, they just balance each other out. So I put it on the menu. And I would say about 90% of the people that I served it to would taste it and then call me back and tell me they hate that wine. And I would be like, I understand that, but you need to have it with the food. I was like, Save your wine, wait till the risotto comes out, taste it with the risotto, and if you still don't like it, I'll get you something else. I was like, but I'm telling you, you need to have it with the risotto. And again, about 90% of the people would then call me back after they got the risotto, and they're like, this is the best thing I've ever drank and eaten. And they're like, it works perfectly. He's like, I would never have this wine by itself, but it works perfectly with the risotto. That's I'm picturing like a real nutty kind of a wine. Do you know? Do you remember which one it was? So it had a semi nutty note to it. It had salinity. Like it had oxidized. almost like a bitterness to it. And I can t- I can tell you what the label looks like. Oh, it's just it, long since left. <laughs> yeah, but other than that, it was like this random producer from northern Italy of this random wine that I doubt even comes into Arizona anymore because I'm pretty sure nobody bought it. Yeah. <laughs> And sold Italian wines for years. It's yeah, it's pushing a rock up the hill. That was like that one you had for what was a Sardinia or uh, yeah, no, not Sardinia, um, Corsica. That the general one that we had the other night when we were drinking the uh, the, uh, the Capucci or the Tucci, the Capatucci, Gabatucci, the one that Jacques brought, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, because uh, I, was, I was like, it looks like James Taylor with long hair. I'll show you a picture later, and it had Tucci on it. I was like, oh, like Stanley Tucci, I remember yeah, it's it a that great- way. But it's also like that w- bottle. It's, it's a great bottle of white wine from Italy, but it's also like seventy dollars. Yeah, yeah. Nobody spends seventy dollars. It's on a French Italian wine too, wine. which is what's crazy about it. <laughs> it's very common though that with a lot of the Italian wines, the acidity throws people off, and it. A lot of those Italian wines don't make good cocktail wines. They make great food wines. Simplest one is Chianti. 
Chianti, there are Chiantis that you could drink on their own, but they're always better with food. Mm -hmm. That's why whenever you go to a wine tasting, when you're, when you're tasting wine at any Italian booth at Vin Italy or uh, Provine, they're always going to serve you prosciutto, soppressata, capicola. They're going to have something for you to have with it because you have to. So, that acid is racy. I mean, and it turns, yeah. it turns people off sometimes. No, yeah, they're not. I think some of them are like you can sit down and drink a whole bottle by yourself. But I would say a lot of Italian whites are just, you need food with them. Mm -hmm. yeah. I would say even like a lot of Italian wines in general, red or white, you kind of need food with them. Like besides Piedmont, you know, I think Barolo's. Well, they've been doing this for thousands of years. They clearly know what they're doing. They're no longer really swinging for the fences for scores and what they can quickly yeah, sell. Go, like even going back to like food pairings, people were like, oh, what should I pair with my Barolo? I was like, I don't know. What would you eat at an Italian restaurant? Yeah. Like. Honestly, though, even even the region of Piedmont is actually going outside the box and doing some really really fun stuff. I mean, you're seeing a lot of Chardonnay come out of there right now. Riesling. You're seeing Rieslings. The Rieslings. Yeah. One of my favorite producers in Doliani, who also makes Barolo, uh, just bought this whole new vineyard. And what he plant? A ton of Riesling, and he is killing it. his Riesling. Fantastic. No, yeah. What uh, what's the first one we're drinking? Yeah. So this is Aunt. Uh, Village level Chardonnay, so Bourgogne. Um, one of my favorite producers. He has another brother whose wine is significantly more expensive, which I cannot afford. <laughs> <laughs> so most Burgundy. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but his stuff, like especially the entry level stuff, is uh, really affordable. Um, super high quality, high production standards. He, yeah, this is, this is I real love tasty. his labels. His labels, I think, are awesome. They're a good hybrid between the new, like, modern-looking label and the old label. Some of these people are stuck in the past. I think they're going to have problems with the millennials because the millennials don't want to drink what their grandparents drink. They don't want to drink what their parents drink. They want to drink what they want to drink. And if you're adapting and doing something fun but still staying true and classy, they're going to buy it. But some of those labels that look like they're from the 20s, I don't think a lot of younger people want to buy them. They buy it no. based on labels a lot. I don't think young people want to buy wine if you really have to, like, in a nutshell. Wine's holding pretty strong still. Yeah. You know, I think overall. I think anything below $30 right now is going to kill it in the market with my generation. Yeah. It's it, anything below 30 The $20 to $30 range is going to just blow everything out of the water. Yeah. And that's the biggest problem right now in the market is the price of wine just keeps going up and up and up and it's up. Insane. and. You know, some states tax the living shit out of the wine. And then not to mention some of these tariffs and everything like that that are going on. I mean, you're just going to start seeing all these wines that are going to keep going up in price. And no, yeah. So so I'm originally from Mexico City. Uh, my dad's dream is to eventually move back to Mexico City and open up a wine shop. But that's impossible in Mexico because there's a 40% tax yeah. on imports. So Holy shit. That it's, is crazy. It's impossible to do any kind of wine sales in Mexico. Like, if you ever go down to Mexico City and go to a nine rest, nice restaurant, you're going to pay, like, $100 for Yellowtail. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's just... I worked with a guy years ago that used to fill up his car with wine, and he was a wholesaler here in town. And he would drive down to the border, and he'd meet some guys that would drive across the border and literally just cases upon cases because it was so much cheaper to buy it in the United States than... Over the border. They do Canada. Canada's so expensive. Yeah. Canada's the, crazy on their taxes. The, 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 you know, the number, number one wine retailer in the nation is the Costco right here in Scottsdale. And it's right next to the Scottsdale Air Park. 
Yeah, I think they're the biggest wine cellar on the West Coast, if I remember correctly, like statistically. Like Just they sell what they sell and the numbers, but it turns out I was talking to some people in there. A lot of it are Canadians. A lot of these rich businessmen fly into the airport. Maybe they have a house here, but they buy cases upon cases of very high end stuff, put it back in their airplane, and fly it back. No, it makes sense. Gonna start. We're gonna open up a wine shop right at the tarmac by the customs place where they all go into. <laughs> There's already one. Venom fifty five. Fifty five. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. <laughs> yeah, and everybody knows them, so it works out nicely. They're, they're in the air park. Granted, they don't have wine on the shelf, but they can order anything at any point. Yeah. And all they have to do is wheel it on the plane and take off. Yeah, it's Bye so now. ridiculous. Yeah. But Burgundy is like obviously a perfect example of just prices keep going up and up. They've had some challenging years, though. They've been hit with crazy hails. They've been had the fires. They had the frosts. I mean, there's been some crazy stuff that have gone on with... In Burgundy, I mean, two years ago, they lost, like, what, 50% of their production? Yeah, they got the hailstorms. They got destroyed. Um, yeah, and, like, even now, Beaujolais, you know, is within Burgundy. But I remember five, ten years ago, you can get, like, really high-end Beaujolais for 15 bucks, And now it's, like, Foyard's Fleury is 65 That's and, crazy, yeah. You know, but, I mean, I think it's worth it. Foyard's Fleury Beaujolais is, like... I think one of the, the top one of the best Beaujolais you can get, but yeah, it's just everything is going up. Everything is, and and that's probably going to end up hurting the wine industry, especially with the younger people, because you have your choice to go out and drink two or three craft beers that are six or seven percent alcohol and have a fun night. I'm like, why go out and buy a fifty dollar bottle of wine? You know? Yeah, that's I think the why you see a huge rise in cans and those little box things like the black box things that are this big because if they want to drink wine they'll get that. Trader Joe's probably has a great selection for everybody because they're ten to fifteen bucks and most of that stuff is what they would consider higher label styles. <laughs> You're gonna see some crazy stuff over in Europe. Like they got the whole test tube thing going on over yep. there, the wine in test tubes. I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. So they sell they sell a bottle of wine though, but in four test tubes. And this way, it comes in a little box often, or at a shop, they'll just you can buy one single test tube at a time, and it's exactly one pour. It's glass, it's got a cork in it. They can pop it, pour it in, done. If you want to buy a bottle, it's four test tubes. There's your four glasses. Did they get the idea from Old Town Scottsdale? <laughs> Australia <laughs> shots. It's really popular in Australia right now. Really? Yeah. Oh man. But when we last time I walked around Provine, a lot of producers sitting on their tables were these little four packs of the test tube wines. That's crazy. It's funny. That Copa de Vino had so much potential if it wasn't the most garbage thing to ever drink in the wine industry. <laughs> but you can say that with like uh, tap wine. Yeah, all the keg wines. Yeah, when I opened a restaurant back in the day, we had keg wine, and my options were nothing. Yeah. It, it was literally nothing. Like I think I had local Arizona wine, which we had on the menu, and then I had two other taps that I needed to fill, and I had maybe combine across all the distributors 15 options and now people have pertainers yeah and they have the plastic disposable crushable and recyclable ones like, or here we have a distributor in town that kegs all their own wines yeah. they have a kegging facility so they yeah. buy giant thousand liter bladders That's, and keg it also and they do good stuff yeah, yeah well, there's so much bulk so much wine different. out there but it was crazy so it was funny like how there's a paradigm shift um i remember i had a table so we had keg wine and on the menu, like, it doesn't say keg wine. It's, there was just a little star. And on the bottom, it said, it denotes that it comes from a keg. So this table ordered a bottle of it. And it comes in a decanter. Obviously, we don't put it in a bottle. <laughs> <laughs> so they got the bottle. They drank it. They loved the wine. 
um, I was managing this restaurant. My server comes to me and she's like, hey, can you go talk to this table? I was like, yeah, what's up? And she's like, they want to talk to you about the wine. I was like, is there something wrong with it? And they're like, no, no, no. They like. They want to see the bottle. Paid the bill, whole nine yards. They just want to talk to you about the wine. I'm like, okay. So I go over to that there and I'm talking to them. I was like, oh, hey, like, heard you guys had a question about the wine. They're like, yeah. We're like, we didn't know this comes from a keg. And I'm like, yeah. I was like, we have four wines by a tap system. I was like, we have this special kegerator that is specifically built for wine. One half of the keg is for whites and the other half is for reds. And I was like, how was it? And they're like, we really like it, but we want to take it off the bill. And I was like, why is that? And they're like, we wouldn't have bought it if we would have known it came from the keg. I was like, did you like the wine? And they're like, yeah. And I was just like, would you come back and order it again? And they're like, no, because it doesn't come in a bottle. That's so weird. But it was just, they need to have this like idea you know bubble gum was five cents 50 years ago and it should never be more than five cents you know it's just this but now you go to any bar across the country keg wine is a pretty regular thing now you for the have, most part you should just ask them if they've ever been to italy or france because when you go there and you get wine you order the rosso or the bianco or you get a carafe of the local wine they're not taking and pouring that wine out of the bottle into the carafe they literally have just like a giant barrel and it's coming right off the tap yeah I, I like thinking of like situations I work with. I had listened to a thing on um, in Germany. They're having a huge problem with bottles because they recycle a lot more. And uh, they were talking about bringing in cans. And then they were interviewing some German people. And it was like an NPR thing. And they're, they get offended by people who use cans. So like, we don't want cans. We want glass bottles. They don't want to switch to cans at all because they think it's cheap. And I get the perception of, you know, keg wine being cheap, even though there's such high quality out there. It's just... It's such a weird perception of what people have and like what reality is sometimes. Because at first it comes out of a tree, like you're putting it in oak barrels, and then it goes into a glass bottle. But you're fine with it being out of a glass bottle, or excuse me, out of a tree, and then not the actual keg that it was going to be put in. But even bottles back, if you go back far enough, was weird. Probably wasn't even glass. They probably used like those uh, like leather pouches and just shoved it into there. Back in the day, they used just you would go and go to your local wine merchant and carry your jug. And you go there, and they fill it for you, and you pay it. Yeah, it was never these seven hundred and fifty milliliter bottles. It was, even I'm, I'm assuming even back in those days, people were like, "Why are you buying bottles of wine?" Yeah. So That's who do you think weird. started that trend? The whole romance of uncorking a bottle and was pouring it. Thomas in. Jefferson. You got me on that one. Yeah. I heard a story that like Thomas Jefferson purposely didn't want to ship wine to the U.S. in barrel because he was afraid of theft. Is I remember, I remember this story. So he he asked the producers to bottle it be, and cork it because if you ship it through barrel, the sailors would just open up, open it, and open drink it, up, it, drink it, and just add water to it. Yeah, and thin it out. So he was afraid of theft, and then makes that's sense. Interesting. Yeah. That's so crazy. That's of course, true. it's America that changes the whole game. But that's still very common over in Europe, where they just you see the old man walking up the street with a jug. And he gets to the winery and gives them the jug, and they just fill it up. I mean, I'll never forget the one time in I was around Verona, and this guy comes walking up the street with looked like he ran out of gas. It looked like two gas jugs, and they literally have what looked like a gas pump. Like you pull it out, the old school's like ding, 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 ding as it's filling up the gallons, and he fills up his two jugs, pays his handful of euros, and little eighty year old man goes walking up back down the street with his <laughs> like ten gallons of wine. God, I love that. Yeah, but I mean, you can say that about Stevlin enclosures. 20 yeah. years ago, 20 yeah. years ago, it was like, here's your really nice bottle of wine. C crack. 
You know, uh, there was a Grand Crew producer who did Twist Offs in Chablis. Really? Yeah, they tested it out, and it's that's that's one of the places. Was it like one of the Ravenos or something like that? Something, and it wasn't like their entire production. They did they they like did twenty percent of their Grand Crew production was done out of Stevlin. Okay, Uh, I don't think I'm pronouncing that right. Anyways, Twist Off. I like they did it one vintage because everyone just hated it. I swear by them. I love them. If you could just go ahead and put every bottle with it, I don't care. Yeah. It keeps the wine yeah. so fresh. I got wine stored horribly here in one of my rooms, and a lot of the corked bottles have overaged. They're oxidized. They're just toast. Every single screw top that we've opened back there is spot on perfect. Ten 13 year, years later. Yeah, 10, 12, 15 year old like Shirazes that you drink them, they taste fresh. They taste delicious. It's like, oh my God. Like, yeah, what is it? Like 30% of cork is. Yeah, I saw it was like, yeah, 20, 30% is 20, 30%. failure. That's a crazy amount of well, number. <laughs> not to mention, it's not an exact science. You could have 12 bottles out of a case aged exactly the same, and three bottles will oxidize because the cork just has tighter pores, and it's not like every cork is exactly the same. Yeah, yeah. I've heard of stories of like guys opening like one case of really nice burgundy, and they would tell me, they're like, two of the bottles were great. Six of the bottles were like really, really good. One was screwed up, and the other two were like below average, all within the same case. Uh, yeah, that's got to be so frustrating too, because like I don't buy cases at a time. I would if I could, obviously, but being that like I don't have that money, so I get one or two bottles at most of really good stuff. And there are so many times I look at that wine and I'm like, everything I have in my cellar right now is pretty much a one, maybe two bottle. Like I, like ninety five percent of my cellar is one bottle of that thing, and I'm like, some of these are corked. Some of these wines that I spent a lot of money on and absolutely cannot wait to open and I'm going to love, a couple of these are bad and I just don't know until I drink it one day. Yeah. And there's nothing I can do about it. Can't return it, can't do anything now because I've let them age long enough. But I will say as a psalm, like, you do lose the bromance of the whole experience of ordering a nice bottle of wine yeah. in a restaurant when you have a screw top. Yeah. Because it's like... Yeah. And they, the pre- presents presents the, <laughs> present seen, the screw top. I've seen people do this where they set the Snow screw top down. You're like, dude, just put it in your pocket and throw it away. Yeah, you're not top. supposed to. There's yeah. a lot of dumbasses in the restaurant business. So. No, yeah, you're not supposed to present the screw top. <laughs> like, okay, cool, dude. We're not gonna <laughs> smell the inside of the. So that's so great. Uh, let's talk about Riesling for a minute because Riesling is such a amazing grape. We always say there's a saying that I've heard many times. It's a Psalm's career starts with Riesling and ends with Riesling. A lot of people that achieve their master song, they're sitting around, they're like, what do you want to drink? I want to drink Old Ass Riesling. That's like the epitome of a lot of great wines. I mean, burgundies and there's certain things, but it's one of the most ageable wines. A lot of America thinks of Riesling, they think of barefoot Riesling or something that is super sweet, coying, something that, like my mom goes to a restaurant and she tries to order white Zivendel because that's what she likes. And they say, no, but we have Riesling. Well, if you give this to my mom, there's no she's going to hate it. There's no way she's going to drink that. This yeah. wine is so stupid good. It's unbelievable, but it's not sweet at all. It's, but it's, it's like it was like White Zinfandel was an intern that fucked up. Did you ever hear that story? I know the story of it. I didn't know it was an intern that fucked yeah, up. Yeah, it was like an intern that like did the pump rover wrong and uh, like fucked it up or something. It's just stopped the fermentation at some yeah. point, so it just ended and up super sweet and low alcohol. Whoever, I forgot. It wasn't Gallo. It was somebody else. And it uh, was, it was like, Behringer. Yeah, it was a yeah, yeah, Behringer. And then they said, ah, oh, fuck it, let's try to sell it. And then it was their best seller. He marketed as a blush, if I'm not mistaken. That's where that term came from, I believe. I could Maybe. be wrong on I that know. one. I mean, All I heard is, I remember hearing the story that some intern fucked it up. 
and sounds about right they just put it out in the market because they didn't have a choice they're like we have to try to sell it and sold it as white zinfandel blush or something yeah and it ended up being like their number one seller and that's how like that company essentially became what it is now well zinfandel typically has a lot of natural sugars in mm-hmm. it and it's that's why it achieves such a high alcohol level and if you stop the fermentation before it hits 17 percent you're gonna end up with an eight percent sweet wine yeah it's funny with like the whole intern thing because one of my favorite rosés that i've ever had was because somebody fucked up it was uh lioko i would say probably like seven years ago no like Nine, ten years ago, the Lyoko Rosé got screwed up because one of their interns or something pumped over one of their Pinots into the Rosé tank. So it was like this really, really dark Rosé. You know how it is. People don't like dark Rosé. They want the pale salmon skin Salmon rose. color, yeah. yeah. But I remember we got tasted on it, and I'm just like, this is the best Rosé I've ever had. And they couldn't sell it. So they dumped it and I bought like cases of it. And I drank it all summer because it was like an amazing rosé. And later on, I found out that like, oh, yeah, like I met someone from Lyoko or something. They're like, yeah, it was like some intern that totally fucked it up and like accidentally pumped over one of our single vineyard Pinots over to it. And we didn't have a choice. We had to bottle it. Like it's just it was what it was. And you you get one chance a year to make wine. Yeah, and I told him I was just like I was like, did you guys hire that guy? I was like, he should make all your rosé. Like, <laughs> rosé was amazing. <laughs> I mean, if, if you're a brewery and you have a bad batch, you dump it down the drain. You just start again. Yeah. You if you fuck up in wine, let's find out a way to sell it. Probably even yeah. as the brewery, just do a special like, all right, we got five dollar fuck up uh, fuck up beer. Well, that's that's you just ship that to your wine club members then. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I hate to say it, but. I've gotten some kind of unique rubbish wines over the years from different wine clubs. You know, they're like, oh, this is only for our members. You're like, or what Napa, is you turn this? it into port. Yeah. Yeah. You know what's funny <laughs> is like, so when I go and buy, sometimes I need bulk wines to fill and get. Like, I can't really do Pinot. I've made, I think, two Pinots now. And so most of the year, people want it. So I'll buy some bulk. And uh, there's certain times of the year things come out. Like, right at, right, right before harvest, everybody's pushing their 15 and 16 of what's left. Like, we still have this in barrel. I'm like, Jesus, you still have this in barrel? But all right, cool, I'll take it because it's 10 bucks Mount Vitor cab and it's actually still really, really good. But a lot of port comes out in the middle of the year and they're like, yeah, we just dumped brandy into it and it's like 2013 and 14. You're like, yeah, they had a lot of leftover wine. So this is... This is really funny though, because I'm just I'm, I'm still on this whole Riesling thing. First of all, yeah. this Riesling is unbelievable. It's this, this it's, is seriously one of the best white wines. It's got great acid. It's got great nuances. The nose just comes up and slaps you. I mean, it's so defined. I want everybody to see this one because this was like seriously one of the best Rieslings I've ever had. So in in the Longe in Barolo and Barbaresco, they invented their own type of bottle. Now they mm-hmm. didn't want to put their wines in a Burgundy bottle because that's French and they're Italian. Like, you don't want to put it in a Bordeaux bottle because that's French and these guys are Italian. So they invented their own type of bottle and it's the Albiesa bottle. <laughs> the Albiesa bottle is a combination between Burgundy and Bordeaux mm-hmm. and it's traditionally held for Barbarescos and Barolos. Mm-hmm. You don't see Lange Nebbiolo put in this type of bottle. They'll usually use a Burgundy bottle. Now, we have a Barolo here at the table that is not in an Albiesa bottle, but the Riesling is. And I find that really funny because I've never seen a, a Riesling or even a white wine in a Barolo bottle. Well, it's GD. I mean, I imagine they have enough pull to either do that or they just have so much left over from all the wine. that My mouth is still watering. I feel like I'm drooling right now. That's how much acid's in that wine. I, when, when I, They're so good. When I used to teach wine classes, I used to call it the drool factor. And yeah. certain wines, it's that acid and everything like that. Like, literally, it makes you want to drool on yourself. No, it does. It, it keeps your mouth super juicy. But <laughs> people don't think of this region 
for Rieslings, and I think in the next five or ten years, this is going to be a, a hot zone for Rieslings. I think these are going to become very, very, very sought after. The few that I've had have blown me away. Caviolas, Pecaninos, this GD Vira, like every yeah. one of them I've been like, holy Pecanino's shit. Pecaninos doing Riesling now? Yeah. Dang. That's what he, that's the Doliani producer I was talking about yeah, that bought the Orlando. hill and yeah. But yeah, going back to your statement about like Assam's career begins with Riesling and ends with Riesling. It's a really true statement because I think Riesling ages significantly better than any other grape out there. Better than Burgundy, better than Bordeaux, better than Napa, better than Do you know anything. why? Do you know why that is? I don't. The closest thing I've ever gotten to someone explaining me that is Dr. Lucid. Um, so I did a seminar with Dr. Lucid, and he explained Riesling aging as a two-tier system. So he's so the way he explained it, he's like, Riesling gets good, 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 and then it plateaus. It hibernates. It goes to sleep. You get about five years to eight years where it doesn't do anything. It doesn't get bad. It doesn't do anything. And then after that, it goes back up again. And th that's Riesling. Whereas like Burgundy, even Barolo or Napa, really good Napa Cab or Bordeaux, it's always on a bell curve. It goes up, it hits its peak, and it goes back down. Whereas Riesling doesn't do that. And he's, the reason he said this is because he's like, a lot of people hit that plateau and they're like, oh shit, it's going to go bad. So then they drink it or sell it or whatever they do. And he's like, but if you have a little bit of patience and self-control, he's like, let it sit in your cellar and then you'll see it again hit. And I've had some crazy old Rieslings that are taste like they were made yesterday. The oldest still wine I've ever had was a Riesling and it was from the 20s and it knocked my socks off. Yeah. It just, it just has a perfect combination of sugar and acid or just acid. It's, I, so acidity is the most important thing when it comes to aging wine. Yeah. A wine that has no acid falls apart. Warm climate Chardonnays are dead in a year. A lot of these wines that just <laughs> on don't, don't, and that's, I mean, and you need to have natural acidity. You can't acidify your wine and try and fake it. Yeah. So that's why the cheap wines that maybe have that acid are still dead in two or three years because they're just acidifying it. And you need the right acid. Yep. I think that's yeah. the other thing so people don't realize. Riesling is the high, like literally one of the highest acid grapes on the planet. That's why they leave it sugar in it. That's why they stop fermentation and they leave it sweet because bone dry Rieslings will take the enamel off your teeth. I mean, they're so acidic, but they age so gracefully with all that acid in there. And that's why often, you know, like the Brunemeyer, after 15, 20 years, that wine's just hitting its stride. Yes. Do they make sparkling wines out of. Uh... Riesling, yeah, like in a sect, is that? But is it a Riesling that they use? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're sparkling Riesling. That'd probably be really fantastic. I've never had like old sparkling Riesling. Me either. Um, it's so not like they're going to bring that into America, though. Like, I, I maybe like one importer has a couple cases. If yeah. you're lucky, it's not coming if to it Arizona. Exists, it's, it's, it exists in like New York. Well, you're lucky. All right, so you're about to go to Burgundy for your MBA. MBA. So what, what exactly are you doing over the next two years? Because obviously now you get a chance to be in the heart of all of this. So you can take a train to Mosul or up mm -hmm. to Champagne or wherever and try all awesome. the stuff we're talking about. Yeah. But so you're there in 10 days or wherever. And um, so what is it that you're doing over there? Essentially, it's a Burgundy School of Business and it's located in Dijon, which for the people who don't know, Dijon is in Burgundy. And this isn't it's where mus mustard comes from there, right? Yeah, mustard. Dijon yeah. mustard, oh, specifically. 
<laughs> I'm not blown away by that, but I feel really stupid for all of a sudden that light bulb turning on. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. I was like thinking Dijon clone. I was like, yeah, the grape, right? Oh, no, mustard. Oh, fuck. Um, but yeah, so a couple of my friends like started their master's programs. My friend Jabari, who you guys mm-hmm. know, started his master's program over at uh, GCU, and he's about to finish in January. And a couple of my other friends started looking at their master's programs and so on and so forth. So I was just sitting around drinking a bottle of wine at my house, and I was like, oh, I wonder if there's any master's programs in terms of wine. Um, like I said before, like I graduated with criminology, so I, with criminology, what I want to do is go into my graduate program, eventually become a PhD, and teach and do research. So I've always had that interest in school. So I started researching these programs. There's only one in the U.S., uh, which is at in Sonoma. And then there's the school I'm going to in Dijon. Um, there's a program in Bordeaux. There's a couple programs in Paris, another couple programs in Milan, and that's about it. And then I'm assuming, oh, Austria is another big one. Okay. Um, there's a couple programs in Austria. I just decided to say, fuck it. I, uh, do it. Yeah, I applied for it, did my interview, and a week later, I got an email saying I got accepted, and I was like, all right, cool, now I got to move to France. So, so <laughs> is this program wine-focused at all, or is it just that so, you're in wine country and you're getting your MBA in some other So field? the specific MBA is wine and spirits. Awesome. There's enology involved, viticulture involved, uh, deductive tasting involved, but that's very minimal. Um, what it focuses on is portfolio management, import exports, um, market penetration, market strategy, the global trade. Yeah, the global I mean, trade. Um, about a third of the program talks about China. You know, a lot of it's focused on the U.S. The two biggest markets in the in the world is U.S. market and China. Yeah. So. They focus on those areas. Yeah, a lot of that's just because of the size and the population that we have yeah. and the, the, the economy, money. But, the... Yeah. But, I mean, all across Europe, you have different rules and laws for every single mm-hmm. country. So if you're dealing with Denmark, it's going to be very different than dealing with Spain, which would be yeah. very different dealing with, uh, like, London or dealing with England. Plus, they got to change it because, I mean, people pulling out of the EU now. And, yeah, yeah that, that's a pretty in-depth program if you're thinking yeah. about the global wine market and trade what really truly goes on and in france because what most people don't even understand i barely even understand it is all the not only the futures market but also all the negotiants all that market that's very very confusing laws who has what but also i mean yeah if you're selling in europe at least if you're selling to america you know you're just selling to america and you kind of got to judge the states a little bit but if you're in france and you're like oh i gotta learn the denmark market well that's cool that's like learning the market in rhode island it's kind of just not worth it at some point, sometime. So, people in Europe drink wine definitely a little different, you know. They drink it locally. We, we have certain areas, certain regions that are very known for consuming, you know, a, a good portion of wine. California, New York, Massachusetts, Kentucky, and Alabama are not consuming a lot of wine. No. I mean, the Appalachian states are known for whiskey, whereas in Europe, no matter where you're at, they're consuming some form of wine. I mean, especially like even like South American countries, some of their best exports are going to Europe. Like, all the cheap wine that's produced in Chile goes to England. Yeah, it's a huge export. Yeah, that's crazy. You know, really. like, huh. Yes, I know I've read about some wineries in Argentina and Chile who export 98% of their wine. Wow. Like, are the English just really don't like the French that much that they're willing to go all the way down to South America? <laughs> Price point. Price point, yeah. yeah. And it's just expensive. You can't buy cheap bulk wine necessarily coming out of France. There's some of it. 
And some of the stuff in Spain, people don't always know what they're getting, but really there's good quality bulk wine that comes out of South America. I mean, it's cheap. Yeah, it's really mm-hmm. good. And a lot of those families have history in Europe. That's where they all came from anyways. So they're just selling to family members or selling to countries that they've already been selling to for ever. Sounds about right. So the NBA thing, while you learned that where the business is, is selling to Chile is a great market for, is that what they're going to sit there and kind of teach you is everything, right? Yeah. Cause it's not like a Psalm thing where it's like, we're going to taste and you're going to learn how to taste. It's no, we're going to teach you that, you know, this is the business models of how things go. Certain yeah. So tiers, there's whatever. a, there's a part of the course is deductive tasting and learning how to taste wine and so on and so forth. But that's very minimal. Yeah. They're going to teach you more on it's like the, the one-on-one class. <laughs> yeah. The global side of it. Like the best way I could think of putting it probably in, would be you're not learning about the wine business, you're learning about the business of wine. Yes, that'd be a good way to explain it. So essentially the program is 18 months, it's eight months, sorry, 10 months of theory. So classes, lectures, that whole thing. And then eight months of internship and then you write your dissertation, your MBA thesis. And your internships, something they do or you find a place you wanna go to? They have a placement program but you do it on your own. You have to network on yourself. So we go to Pro Wine um, in Dusseldorf. We go to a trade show in London. We go to a trade show in New York. We go to um, a tourism convention in Champaign. How many people are in this class? I believe it's around 25 to 35 students total. Huh. 90% of them are all international. Very cool. Very few French students. Okay. I know there's a couple... About a third of them are coming out of Asia, particularly China. My, br- my brother got his master's program in France in Paris, nice. and that's where he went. And same thing, all his, a lot of the people that he went to school with were people from, you know, Egypt, people from Libya, people from, I mean, there was a lot of money. I mean, he went to school with like a princess, like became a really good yeah. friend of his. Like father would show up on the private plane to pick her up and send the hel- <laughs> send a helicopter to come get her for the weekend and stuff. That'd be so funny. He'd be like, all right, I'm just taking off for the weekend. Bye. And just fly away. My brother used to be like, he's like, I'm the poorest kid here by far. Like I grew up in a small town in upstate New York. Like these people are world travelers, international biz- kids of international businessmen who they're putting into the wine trade and you know, to get their MBA in that yeah. program is pretty intense. I mean, you got a lot of competition too, and people that like the peers you're with. Yeah, about one third of the students, like I said, are from like China, and they're it's not a lot of money right now. <laughs> yeah, they're not like middle class Chinese no, students. I imagine they're not. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, I'm excited. What and I get to be in Burgundy. Badass opportunity. I mean, yeah. you're gonna learn so much just being over there and being. There's only so much for you in Arizona. There is, and I love it. Arizona. I want to eventually come back. That's not my goal. My goal is to try to stay out there. But yeah, Arizona's weird. Arizona's weird with the wine scene. It's significantly better. It's significantly... It's taken strides. I don't deny that. But it's still a retirement community, and Silver Oak is a king. Yeah, there's a, there's a reason that Total Wine up by uh, Sun City sells more box wine and sweet wine than any other place in the city. <laughs> no, yeah. Rumbauer and Silver Oak rule this town. Dude, no joke. It's funny because the closer you get to North Scottsdale, the more you start seeing Silver Oak and Rumbauer by the glass on the menu until you like get up there. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy, I, yeah. I've tasted people are showed up with white wines to parties up in North Scottsdale and some really fun esoteric whites. And the first question is, does it taste anything like Rumbauer? Like that's, yeah. their, that's their benchmark. You will never hear that word in France 
ever. Nobody. <laughs> uh, other than just, it's a punchline. That is the punchline, is Ron Bauer. Voulez-vous coucher avec Ron Bauer? Ron Bauer has gotten better, though. Are they making it not as sweet? Have they yeah, toned down on the RS? Like their winemaker, quote unquote, uh, a couple years ago, and they've toned down the oakiness. I have no. I mean, if you take off ten percent, that's toning it out. I have no problems with them. I, I really don't. Yeah, it's, they do, people they enjoy it. People drink it. Like I, I'm never going to dog on anybody. Once again, I have a mother that drinks nothing but Behringer White Zinfandel, so I can only talk so much <laughs> shit about what people drink without being like, "Well, my mom still drinks." The pink stuff. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm going to dog on it. I'm just not going to like say it's... I, I don't hate it. It's just not my style. Yeah. I'm, I'm happy but people I'm definitely going to make fun of some I'm things. just happy people are drinking wine. I don't yeah. care if it comes out of a box, a can, a test tube, yeah. a Rumbauer, a... I've slapped a bag barefoot. a few times. Yeah. yeah. Like, it doesn't matter. People I'm with are... you on that one. Like, to me, I don't care. Nope. Like, if you want $5 bottle of wine from Trader Joe's or Rumbauer or, or whatever the fuck it is that you want to drink, I honestly don't care. Yeah. Whatever you want to drink is what you want to drink. What if makes you, want, you happy. Yeah, what makes you happy? If you want to put ice in your red wine at the end of the day that's your wine like i'm not gonna force you to do anything like Maybe. i cringe a little bit especially like i've seen a guy put ice in sasakai oh like i cringed but at the end of the day right. he bought it like i can't i was like do you just drop you know three to five hundred dollars on a bottle of wine and then you put ice in it but whatever if you can afford it by all means knock yourself out if you can afford it you might as well have just taken a bottle poured it into One his ice trays froze the ice trays and then just cracked the sasakai ice balls into it yeah one of the greatest stories I ever heard was uh, something that happened in like Shanghai or something. Anyways, the Chinese market is very like obsessed with labels. And I got told this story by a friend who said he went out to a restaurant out there, high-end restaurant, stupid money, crazy wine list, crazy, crazy. And this table that was like near them was like a table of like 10 or 13, whatever. Chinese people, and they ordered a vertical of Lafitte. Oh, I know where this is going. Like 10 years of it or something. Something insane. Like stupid money had to be like at least 2500 a bottle, I would assume. I don't know what they charge over there in terms of mar- margins. And they, they had the Psalm or whoever it was just line, line them all up. They all took their photo op. You know, got to get those Instagram likes. And then after they were done... They poured all of them into a punch bowl, added Sprite and fruit, and then they drank it like sangria. Well, that's not where I thought that was going. And I was just like, wow. Like in my head, I'm just like, what the fuck? Like someone would actually do that. And, you know, he's, he explained it. He's like, Chinese people don't give a fuck. He's like, especially the people who have like stupid money out there, they don't give a fuck. They're like, they want labels. Status. They're like, they think it's gross. So that's why they add Sprite bright to it and fruit and drink it like sangria. They don't care. We just want a really, really high bill because we know we can spend it. It's crazy. It's like Chinese people are like becoming like the new rappers of the world. <laughs> but I've heard about them like adding like Coca-Cola in their wines. Yeah. I will say though, Tinto Verano, which is Coca-Cola and red wine, is probably one of the most delicious things. It actually is. I've had it, so it's popular in Spain. Yes. So in Spain, it's a, the calamocho is what they call it there, and it's the Coca Cola and Tempranillo mixed, and a lot of the young people drink it, and it's actually pretty damn good. Oh, dude! I it's mean, it's tasty. gotta be this thing's like it's like an alcoholic cherry cola. Yeah. It's yeah. fantastic. It's a hangover in a cup. Well, so there's a reason <laughs> like flavored booze became big and seltzers now are going crazy. Now the thing I was thinking of with that label was is that I think it was Lafitte. They made all those years for China, and then it was like either 2008 
They have a special number, I think, with eight, and they made a special label for it, and like they charged an extra thousand dollars a bottle for it because they could, because it was the only one with like an eight on it. But it, also, I've been told that like a third of wine in China is forged. Forged, yeah. That's, I saw something where they like they actually smashed the bottles so that nobody can forge that bottle. Otherwise, there's probably yeah. somebody sitting there like, yeah, let me take this from you in back doors at for a say, couple hundred dollars. Empty bottles of Lafitte sell for a couple hundred dollars over there. Because mm-hmm. the people just fill it up with other, something else and sell it for a thousand, two thousand, yeah. three thousand. That's yeah. crazy. Look at the counterfeit market in China; it's insane. I believe it. I mean, they've been counterfeiting everything from sunglasses to shoes to pottery, everything. That's just iPhones. Like, yeah, I've, I've seen a it. fake Phantom before on like a picture. It's like literally a fake Rolls Royce because <laughs> they basically countered the whole thing. They called it like the Big Red or something. I just saw an article that like they shut down like a fake Lamborghini factory. That's that's so fantastic. I love it. At least they're, you know, putting in some one hell of an effort. <laughs> Dude, this, uh, let's move to this Barolo, man. This, I, I smell it from here and I'm just like waiting for this just to keep opening. It's really soft and it is still really tight. A lot of the fruit is like a closed fist in the middle of it, um, but it's got good balance. Now, one thing about, you know, when you, when you looked at this bottle, the first thing you said, you're like, ah, Rivera. Rivera. You know, this is a commune in Southern Barolo that is known for producing very approachable Barolos. You know, when you talk, when you look at the map of all the different communes of Barolo, the, the, to me, I always say the ones from the north and the ones a little bit more to the east tend to be more aggressive in their youth, but they're a little more age-worthy. The ones to the south, are you can drink them right away. But I, I think that you should just drink them young. You know, I think they, something about those southern soils are a little different. And every one I've ever had out of Rivera tends to have sweeter tannins. The tannins aren't aggressive. You don't get that real tobacco or that really hard tannin in it. I think it's also producer. Producer is very important in Barolo for me. Like you have the quote unquote new school, old school, chestnut, French, you know, hogshead barrels versus not using hogshead, you know. They're back in the oak off all across Barolo right now. They're really, a lot of the producers are back in the oak down finally. Yeah, so... Yeah, I think I think producers are very important in Barolo. One of the things I have heard is that Barolo was better when they just blended everything. Like I've heard that from Jacques, like not single vineyards. Yeah, because really? single vineyards are, is an American thing. Really, I thought it was a French thing. No, it was the it was, whole Burgundy thing. No, in terms of like marketing. Oh, and marketing. Okay. Yeah, Burgundy is just because the monks were so methodical. Yeah, that they were like, okay, there's a reason why this vineyard does something different than this vineyard. But in terms of marketing, single vineyard is a very much an American thing. Oh, I had never So like that. back in the day, Barolo was just blended. There was no such thing as Barolo Rivera. It was just... There's no Canelo. It was all Barolo. It was all just Barolo and they just blended it all together. And from what I've heard of some people who... Jacques, who's ancient... <laughs> well, he is a thousand years old. He has said, he's like, to be honest, I like Barolo back when they just blended everything. Yeah. He's like... It balanced each other out. And there's a lot of producers out there who, who believe that philosophy is better because, and I forgot who it was, but they, they explained it, I think, very, very, very clearly to me. It's like, he's like, it's like Picasso when he was in his blue phase. He's like, not that it wasn't great, but you only have blue. Yeah. And he's like, if you take all the colors in the spectrum, I think you come with a better painting. So his argument was like, why would I only paint with black when I can paint with a rainbow? I guess and I was I can, just like, I can see that. Totally. That totally makes sense to me. 
I was like, and he explained it also like cooking. He's like, why would I only use salt when I can use salt, pepper, cayenne, all these crazy spices in my cooking and just make my food so much better? He's like, not that I'm, and he said, he's like, I'm not that I'm against single vineyard because I think some single vineyards are really, really crazy. Like Burgundy is a perfect example of that. You know, single vineyard, Latash and Richborg and all those crazy ones. You can definitely taste like that crazy nuance of why does me taking a step to the left so different from me taking a step to the right. I'm assuming it also has a huge factor of the grape, like not like Cabernet is really known for being that different five feet left, five feet right kind yeah. of thing. But he did say, you know, he he's like, I, I'd rather just use everything. He's like, I think it's... Another example is uh, the field blends in Austria, I think are some of the best wines. I guess it makes sense. I mean, if like if we love Canubi because it smells and tastes like roses and you know, that little bit of tar, but you're getting that so predominantly. And then you have like the Pahe and Barbaresco. I think that was the one that was all pine and everything. Well, now you put those two together, obviously from two different regions, but if you would put them together and well, now you have like really cool, you have three different flavors or three different noses mm-hmm. and so forth and so on. That's one of the magical things about Canubi though, that we've talked about is that's where the, all the soils mix. The soils of the South come together with the soils of the North and there's one hill that actually contains all the soils of Barolo and that's Canubi. Yeah, so, so, you could, so you're, you're, like the field blend. That, yeah, that, that, that that's area. the McCormick seasoning. That's got all the spices already <laughs> in it. <laughs> you know, that's all together. That's the Lauri's. <laughs> of, Lowry, totally. Of Barolo. Uh, actually, let's, what, what's the um, Old Bay seasoning? Old, old Bay. bay. I'm, I'm an Old oh. Bay junkie. Who's the chef who loves Old Bay? Is that a... Uh, I grew up Gordon in New York, Ramsey, man. We use, we use Old Bay on everything. I use it on uh, my corn. Homeboy from uh, Moonfoco. Oh, uh, Chang? Chang, yeah, he loves Old Bay. It's great. I mean, John knows when I do my grilled corn, my grilled corn, I put olive oil on it and Old Bay seasoning, and I grill it on the grill. It's so good. Everyone's like, oh my God, what'd you do to this? I'm like, Old Bay. Yeah, hey, we use it for all the Old boils. Bay is, yeah. We did a crawfish boil a few months back, and it was the all The Mexican Old Bay. version of Old Bay is uh, chicken bouillon. Oh. We put chicken bouillon. So everything. does that mean the Montreal steak is the white, per- white people version of that? Well, I guess Old Bay technically is already the white people version of that. Yeah. That's a Louisiana thing, isn't it? Old Bay? Old Bay? Yeah. No, I think Louisiana is Lari's. Is that Lari's? I'm pretty positive. Seasoning salt. So yeah, for Old Mexicans Bay? is chicken bouillon. All right. No we way. We put that shit on everything. Everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For college students, ramekin packets. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Seriously. I used to take that and put it on oh. everything we ate. I used to eat ramen pocket, uh, ramen, ramen packets <laughs> just straight. Oh, my oh. God. Get out of this country. <laughs> yeah, you might not want to. I be, am. You might not want to tell the people in Burgundy yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, I could just see them having that conversation and be like, what? They're getting on their private jets going, this crazy Mexican that just came from America. So going back to the wines. So one of the cool things I got taught, and I forgot who taught me this, but and this is a perfect opportunity with the Riesling that we have from Piedmont and this awesome Barolo, was a good way to taste wine is to go back and forth between a white and a red really, within the same region. So it would be like, oh, okay. if it was Napa, it would be like Sauvignon Blanc and Cab. It, you know, if it was Burgundy, it was like drink a Chardonnay and drink a uh, uh, Pinot. Pino. And he's like, you go back and forth, it start, they open each other up. Huh. You know, and it's like a cool way to taste. So it's fun having you on. We obviously had Jason on at one point. They were like showing like little things, like I like the whole. I don't remember what it was, but I'm trying to remember. It was the breathe through the nose, and then you breathe out. Yeah, and you breathe out, and that mm-hmm. gives you a better flavor profile. So, He's like saying spitting is actually better. So uh, for like f- tasting. 
the reason why that is is so the way I don't know the technical terms because I'm not whatever a nose doctor is called. So, I just know it as an ENT. <laughs> so when you breathe in, you use different sensors. And when you breathe out of your nose, you use different sensors. So the reason they teach you that is because one of the first things they teach you when it comes to deductive tasting is that 80% of it is in the nose. And, that's a, and I 100% believe that. What you smell is what you're going to taste. If you didn't have the sense of smell, you would taste very differently. Yeah. So the second you smell it, you're going to taste something that you already smelled. So that's why they tell you, like, when you taste, leave it in your mouth and breathe out, and it'll help you deduce that wine better because you're using different sensors within your like with nasal you, so canal. Keep, keep the wine in your mouth. Do you open your mouth a little and breathe out through your nose, or you just straight breathe out through your nose with your mouth just shut? Just breathe out with your nose, okay. and, like, you get those vapors that go the opposite way. Like, I've... It's crazy, like how many techniques. Like I've heard psalms that like shoot steroids into their nostril before Wait. their exam. That's interesting. I was wondering if like nose hair makes a difference too. Like people like shave it like three days before. I'm pretty sure that probably like a swimmer that shaves before like a big match. Yeah, yeah. I saw a guy do a. He did a waxing. His girlfriend did a wax up his nose and in his ear, and they yanked all of it out and I just like cringed immediately because I got some fun. My, my nose here matches my beard sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, I've heard of like injecting steroids into your nostril to like enhance it. I've heard of drenching your not your nasal canal like with hot with water. Little, little poor yeah, thing. Little drip. You know, I've heard of so many things that people do. Ah, so. You know, like, ah, so. The one thing I like in my tasting groups when I try to like train people to taste for like they're certified is I was like, wake up in the morning and drink. You know, that was my biggest thing is don't go into the exam dry because you need to open up your palate. You need to drink beforehand. Drink like a quarter of a bottle of red and drink like a quarter of a bottle of white. And I think I think you'll go into it perfectly. Don't drink coffee. Yeah. Don't smoke cigarette. (laughs) Yeah. I will say one of my favorite pairings of all time. So when I worked at R&R, we had a day where we took the entire staff, because originally it was supposed to be like a high-end upscale wine bar. It's not anymore. But uh, we had like 900 bottles or something, and they took us to Southern because we pretty much had an all-Southern menu. And Southern brought all the wines that we had. We were supposed to have like 60 staff go, and uh, they were going to sit us down and try every single one of the wines. So they had four bottles of every single thing that we had, which I'm not kidding, was like it was like 180 wines were out. And only like 20 of us showed up. Like we took like three cars to get there. And so we get there and uh, we taste through all the stuff. And then the, the guy who ran the thing at the end came up to me and goes, hey, by the way, all this wine was paid for. And I was like, yeah, I know. And he goes, no, like it was paid for, like it's yours. I'm like, oh shit, it's ours? He goes, yes, hold on. So we had... Taylor Fladgate's 10, 20, 30, 40 vintage ports amongst all the wines. So I literally cr- like brought the crates, like milk crates out, and we're just stuffing bottle after bottle after bottle. I got like a bunch of Atchabal Ferrer, single vineyard Malbecs, all this great stuff. And so I took all the ports home with me because nobody wanted them. So I went to my dad's house with a 40-year Tawny port. And I was like, here, this is yours. We're going to open this tonight because, you know, whatever. He's like, oh, that's so nice of you. And I was taking the cigar and literally dipping it in like the end that I would smoke into the port. And he's sitting there like, fuck are you doing? I'm like, the bottle was free. I'll do what I want. So I'm sitting there dipping it and then smoking through that thing for, you know, the whole night. And it was seriously one of the best tasting cigars still to this day I've ever had. <laughs> yeah. My dad used to do that. 
my dad used to dip. He used to be a big cigar smoker and then he stopped, but he used to dip it in port and then smoke it. Dude, it's such a, it's, it really, fl- I get how Swisher Sweets probably became really popular. <laughs> Somebody was like, that's a great idea. I'm going to make a cheap, crappy version of that. <laughs> so I figured I'd go ahead and just pour this and let it open up a little bit. Yeah. I mean, it's a 15 year old Riesling at this 04. point. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the color alone looks like, you know, like you just ran a marathon and just took a leak. Like it's that deep gold straw color. Oh, God, the name on this thing. John, come on. All right, here we go. Ready? Hold on. I want to show this. So this is Donhoff, which is probably one of the best Riesling producers. Skernick wine. Skernick wine. Skernick. It's probably not even Donhoff. It's probably like Donhoff or something. All right. Donhoff? Yeah, Donhoff. I don't know. Niederhauser Hermann Schuchel Riesling Ausschleiß. Auschleise. Is it Auschleise? Auschleise? Auschleise. Auschleise. Yeah. God, that is a whole ugly sentence right there. So the... I'm going to butcher to it, but the Hermann Cholet vineyard is what I've always called it. Oh, Hermann Cholet. Okay, thanks. But the... Um, it, trust me, there's little umlauts and the little dots and all sorts of stuff on that <laughs> one. Umlauts. But that is like the gold standard of racing vineyards in the Nahe, from what I was told. You'll just, learn this. <laughs> no, it's... Mosul is one of my favorite regions. It's funny, so like... So wait, is is Nahe Mosul? No, no, I'm just saying in general. No, there's Nahe Mosul. There's like 18 regions in Germany, but obviously uh, nobody knows any of them. Yeah, besides Mosul, it's Mosul. There's one other one, Rheingau. There's the Faults. There's a Rheingau. Rheingau. I think that's the one I was thinking yeah. of. Those are like the three I can think of. So it's funny. So like one of the first, one of the first wines I remember that was like a holy shit moment was Austrian Zweigelt. And the second wine that was like a holy shit moment was German Riesling. How's, how's Rheigau? Because we drank it one time. It's kind of a basic wine. Maybe just because we had a basic version um, of it. So Zweigel is a hybrid grape that is a cross between two grapes. I, to me, the best way I describe it for someone who doesn't know wine is I consider it like a heavier body Pinot. Okay. That's kind of how like we thought it was like like a Merlot without tannin or like a Beaujolais with a little more body to it. Yeah, so that, I think that's the best way to describe it. But I couldn't tell you the producer. I couldn't tell you this was like way back in the day. I had this bottle and I was like, holy shit, this is actually really damn good. And then the second bottle that I had, I was like, holy shit, this is actually really damn good. Was a Riesling from Germany. I couldn't tell you where it was from. I'm assuming probably Mosul. And like you mentioned earlier, like a Psalm's career begins with Riesling and ends with Riesling. And Riesling, I think, is an amazing grape. I think I would drink it probably. Often, all the time. There's so many different expressions of it, too. I think that's probably the hurdle that Riesling has in the global market with the average consumer. Because you don't always know what you're going to get unless you're a wine professional. I know when I'm getting a Longay Riesling, I'm pretty sure I know what I'm getting. If I'm getting something from Donhoff, I got a good idea of what I'm going to get, depending on whether it's yeah. one of their single vineyards, whether it's just their ordinary straight one. If I'm, I mean... If I'm ordering, if I'm getting Chateau Saint Michel, I know what I'm getting. But the average person goes, "Oh, I like Riesling." Then they get it and they get this. They're going, "Oh, fuck, I don't like Riesling." And they get that and they go, "Oh no, I don't like Riesling." There's such diversity. Cabernet is pretty much Cabernet. I mean, granted, there's gonna be different bodies of Cabernet, but someone who's a Cabernet lover yeah. can be confident in ordering a Cabernet off a list that they're gonna get something that they yeah, are gonna enjoy. If it's current vintage California Cabernet, it's gonna be either Sledgehammer or Sledgehammer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah pretty much. <laughs> Same thing yeah. with Zinfandel. If it's coming out of California, it's, oh, that's big in 16 plus percent alcohol. Yeah. Not the better I don't know how people drink like, multiple bottles of that shit. 
It's well, those are the I same. Would die. I, I'll give you a clue. First off, they mostly wear Tommy Bahama T-shirts. Second of all, they drank a lot of Johnny Walker before then. <laughs> then they drank all that Zinfandel. And third of all, you just described your father. Yeah, it's basically how it goes. I've seen his friends and how they drink. You have to have your chest hair out, gold chain on, I legitimately and get the was thinking biggest. Of your dad. Yeah, everything. Tell him. <laughs> so your dad, last yeah. time you came into Atlas, yeah, like yeah, pretty much. Our refrigerator has nothing but Brunello Cab and all the Zins that are that make a cocktail look weak. Sometimes it's funny. Like one of my favorite things to do at Atlas is we would get those guys. Like I only drink red. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. And I remember one time we had, uh, he's not like a super regular, but he comes in a couple times a year. Good guy. I don't know what he does, but he does something that makes him stupid money. And he usually just comes in and lets us choose whatever the fuck we want them to drink. So I'll at least give him that. He's super open, friendly. I like him. He's cool. He lets me do my job. And Todd, he, you know, we can just pick whatever the fuck we want for him. And I remember one day we picked out this white one. And I think it was the Grimaldi uh, Lenge uh, Sauvignon. And he's, he, I think he drank like two bottles by himself. Because he was like, what the fuck is this? And <laughs> we're like, it's really, really good. And it's really, really cheap. And he's like, I hate, he's like, I don't drink white wine. He's like, but let me pound that all day, every day. You know, we've got a, you got a, we all got a, Joe. Joe will yeah. never drink a white. And ironically, he had a Viognier recently. And he went, oh. Oh, that's not bad. <laughs> yeah. No, it's just, to me, it's just... Because the people he hangs out with have always drank Rumbauer, and he probably didn't like Rumbauer. No. So yeah. instantly in his head, he goes, I don't like white wine, and he just drinks cabs. To me, one of the things that, one of the biggest annoyances for me when it comes to being a Psalm is when people's like, oh, well, I had this one Chardonnay, so therefore I fucking hate Chardonnay. I'm just like, do you understand the spectrum of any grape in the wine community? It's endless. It's I had Jose endless. Cuervo, therefore tequila sucks. Like, yeah, no. it's just it's endless. But it's just but even tequila is a smaller spectrum compared yeah. to wine. But you described Napa cab sledgehammer sledgehammer. There's no difference. Like there, there, but there are nuances. Awesome Napa cab. Tur- we love drink. Turnbull. Like Turnbull, I think is doing Turnbull's a great job. Awesome freaking uh, Seven Hills out of Washington. Is Seven like, Hills is good for twenty bucks. It's like really entry Goldschmidt. Fucking, I can rattle off endless amounts like Tor. Like, I think his really stuff good. is amazing. Like, don't get me wrong, it's big, but his is like balanced. It's not a sugar yeah. bomb. It's not. Dude, a, that Lapiche is fantastic. The Lapiche, yes, it's crazy good for fifty bucks for being a Napa cab, which is like, for me, a fifty dollar Napa cab is fucking cheap. Well, I poured that <laughs> one for you that we yeah. had. I think you maybe had a little that Malbec from Sodaro. They only made it in two thousand seven. It's one of the best Malbecs uh, yeah, I've yeah, ever yeah. had. It was a thirty dollar bottle when I was there, and oh, it comes yeah. from Coombsville. I'm like, yeah, hey, we did but this one just, here. You know, like there's just the spectrum out there for anyone, Napa Cab or Napa Chardonnay or Burgundy or whatever. The spectrum is so huge. You can't, you can't possibly just negate a whole region because you had, had it one, one time and you didn't like it. It's funny because I was, I was literally just going to ask as a Psalm and then also in a fine dining sense, like what is the most annoying thing that you get? Something that's like, it's not even, you can't even do anything about it. Like, um, decisions made, that's ingrained into it. Like, there's no, you can't tweak an opinion. Like, you're just like, that sucks, and there's nothing I can do about this. To be honest, there's really not much. Like, whatever. The Napa guy is going to drink his Napa wine. It is what it is. Like, I, I'm i judgy, but I'm not judgy. Like, at the end of the day, you're drinking wine. I don't give a fuck. Like, it's your bottle. If it's corked, if it's oxidized, if it's cooked, if it's current vintage Napa cab. I don't give a fuck. Like at the end of the day, it's your wine. You want to drink it. I'll serve it to you. 
I got I one. Like, what is what is etiquette for if I buy a bottle, like leaving you a taste? Like, because I, I I see some people. I've had this question with my dad when we first were doing like dining at Atlas, and he's like, "Are we supposed to leave him some of the bottle at the end? Like, is he allowed to try? Like, what? No they literally obligated. have question. Like, no one's obligated. It's appreciated. I know there are certain restaurants I've been to where they're weird about it because it's a very like not a corporate kind of situation, but it's it's not technically yeah, legal-ish. It's, no, it's not even about legality. It's just the company doesn't doesn't like that idea. It. But to me, it's just you have to taste. Like I don't. I personally prefer French style wine service, which doesn't exist out in the U.S. So. What is French style wine service? So typical American wine service is you order this bottle, I bring it to you, I pour you a taste, and this is where people don't know is I'm not pouring you a taste for you to tell me whether you like it or not. I'm pouring you a taste for you to check whether the wine is sound or not. The problem is, A, people don't know that. B, people don't know how to tell whether a bottle is corked or oxidized or off. Because in Europe, most patrons are educated in terms of wine. So there's no need for that. French-style wine service is, I come and I bring this bottle, and you tell me that's the bottle you want. And then I go away, I open it, I taste it for you to make sure it's sound. Okay. And then I come back and I pour you. That's That's interesting how that... Switched. That's way Eleven Madison Park and Gramercy is. Mm-hmm. Um, when I ordered a bottle at Gramercy, yeah, they came out. They showed me the bottle, and the guy went in back, and I saw him. I was watching him back, and he opened it, took a sip out of not the bottle, but you know, he poured a little bit, took a little sip, spit it out, came back, and poured it for us. And that's yeah. the, one of the only times I've ever seen that in the United States. Is that Fre- or is that European? I know you said French style, but it's like that's it's, in the U.S. Either. It's called French style service, but okay. I'm assuming it's European, it's European style, style service. Um, that's crazy. I've but never it's, seen that. Not in Italy. They just drop the bottle. They're just like, drink. Yeah. <laughs> I dare you. I dare you to complain about this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll bring grandma and I will hit you with this wooden spoon. But it's just, to me, it's just, I would consider myself an expert in like some wine and I can tell you whether the bottle's fucked up or not. Yeah. <laughs> so most people that come into any restaurant, regardless of it being Atlas or somewhere else, don't know how to tell a corked wine to save their life. So just let me provide you with the service that I was trained to do. And it is what it is. But a lot of people don't know that. Like a lot of people servers. think it's weird. A lot of servers don't know that. They but look at the, you funny but, when you don't but, taste it. You know, in I, yeah. Phoenix, it doesn't exist. It just, it just doesn't. Like, you, I was at a real high-end winery in Napa. And I took uh, the general manager of the, Roser- uh, the Carneros Resort and Spa, like a friend of mine there, and our buddy. And we sat down. And they poured us their Chardonnay. And I'm not going to blast the winery, but it was here. This was all that was left. And he poured it for all, or excuse me, like it was here. And by the time he got done pouring, it was down to here. And dude, I smelled it and it wasn't lightly corked. It was corked, corked. And that same girl had walked that bottle outside and poured it for the people outside and the people next to us. And they were all drinking it. And they're like, cool. And even my buddy who's, he's learning wine. I sat there and I smelled it. And I was like, have you tried this wine yet? Like this is definitely corked. And my buddy was sitting next to me got weird because he had no idea what he was talking about and he thought I was insulting the guy. So I was like, no, 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 no. This, this seems normal. I'm like, bro, I'm telling you. So then like the guy came over, smelled and he goes, dude, it's the first time I smelled this all day and that is ridiculously corked. I can't believe, and it was all, like that whole thing got poured out all day. I'm guilty. I've worked at some very high volume restaurants here in Phoenix that were wine bars too and 
you're you're in the well. You have a line of tickets. You're just popping corks and pouring carafes. You're just popping and going, popping and going. Yeah, I'm I don't guilty sm- of that. Yeah, I'm not smelling. Sometimes I stick my nose over the bottle, but I kind of got used to it. But I've had it happen here before where servers have presented me wine and it goes in my glass and I, that's good, go ahead. And they look at me and like, are you going to try it? I'm like, no, it's fine. I smelled it. It doesn't smell like a... I've been in situations where like I've, I was at this restaurant and ordered a bottle of wine for the table and I came out and I smelled it. It smelled fairly fine. And then I tasted it. And I told my I told the, I told my server I was just like oh yeah that's fine because I didn't pick up anything on the smell and then I tasted it and I was just like okay this is fucked like it's definitely oxidized so then I told like once he came back I was just like hey just to let you know like can I get another one like this is fucked up and like blah blah, blah. but then the manager came out and it was like oh are you sure I was like I'm pretty positive and me personally I don't like telling people I'm a psalm or fucking I'm in an industry I don't like doing that. Like it, I just don't. It's one of my things. I just I hate saying that. Um, and he's like, "Oh, are you sure?" I was like, "Tell you what, man." I was like, "Bring another bottle out, and we'll taste it together, and I will guarantee you that this bottle's fucked up." So he's like, "Okay." I was like, "And if it's not, then I'll, I'll pay for both. Bo- I'll pay for both of them. I don't give a fuck. Like, whatever. I'll pay for both of them. Like, if you really think like I'm just being an asshole, then." By all means. Yeah. So then he brought it out and we both drank and I was like, hey, taste this one and then taste this one. He's like, yeah, they're very different. I'm like, yeah, no shit. Like, you know, it's just, it's just the lack of education, the lack of caring, name, name a thing. I've been in so many situations where like, it's funny, I was in a situation at a restaurant with this bottle and I went out to dinner and I saw that they had this on their list and I was just like, oh, hey, let me get that. And he comes back with something that's completely different. So they have another bottle that's a blend, and it's called the Dragon, and there's a giant dragon on it, and it's also really good. Is it from GD Vira? Yeah, GD Vira. Oh, okay. Is it a Shard or a Sauvignon or? No, it's like Riesling and like so. I think it's like, it's like three one. or four grapes or something. Yeah, it's like the field blend, but it's it's tasty stuff. It's not that it's bad. It's just that's not what I wanted. <laughs> and the guy comes out and he's like, "Oh, is this it?" I was like, "No." It's like that's not it. I was just like. On your list, it says you have this. I was like, it's fine if you don't. I'll take that. But I was like, can you just double check for me? And he's like, he's like, I'm pretty positive it's this. I was like, I'm pretty positive it's not. <laughs> I was like, can you just check for me? Like, I'm not trying to be a dick. Just check for me. Like, that's all I'm asking for you to check. I was like, I'll take that. If that's what you have and you guys misprinted it on here, I'll take it. That's fine. I was like, but just let me see if you guys have this. Because I would prefer that over the dragon. So he goes back there and he finds it. And he comes back and he's like, he's like, yeah, you're right. We do have this. I'm like, okay, cool. And I would have left it at that. But then he's like, he's like, oh, it's like the labels kind of look the same. I'm like, yeah, totally. One has a giant fucking dragon on it and the other one doesn't. Yeah, they totally look the same. Like <laughs> he's used to dealing with the Joe Schmoes maybe in this town or no, wherever. No, I get it. No, yeah, yeah it's, it's like a huge paradigm thing here. Like I love Phoenix and. I hope it gets better. It's just, but it's, it's the wine business in the United States. We're a beer and whiskey country. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. just, that's our country is founded on beers and whiskeys, like not wine. It wine, is what it is. Wine came along much later in the development of America. Yeah. Yeah. They weren't making a whole lot of moonshine with wine back in the day. Well, the, the settlers were making beer. We were talking about this on the beer episode, you know, in 1865, there were 4,000 breweries in the United States. 
Yeah, and then prohibition happened. Zero. And then in 1980, there was less than 200 still. From prohibition to 1980, 1990, there were less than 200. 4,000 of them, though, in the 1800s. And that's like, what, 20 states? (laughs) Yeah, we were, this country was founded on beer and moonshine. And so it's going to... Even like European wine didn't become popular until after World War II. Really? Because it was all the GIs who went out there, drank French champagne, Burgundy, Bordeaux, Italian, German, Spanish, and then came back and they're like, can we get that? And oh, that makes sense too, especially once you start crossing across France and you're drinking all the stuff. Normandy yeah. and yeah, sitting in a house waiting for the next bottle. That, going, that's What's that? That's there, all I get to drink. There's a that lot, bottle. That's the reason Kermit Lynch exists. Really? Yeah, because his clientele were all ex World War II vets who wanted French wine. That's crazy. There's a ton of stories of the GIs or the the Marines or not in World War II that were all in farmhouses and winery farmhouses just crushing wines yeah. over there. And they could have been drinking like Grand Cru Burgundy. <laughs> well, I do love that. At the very end of uh, Band of Brothers from HBO, the very last after they defeat the Germans and they go up the to Hawk's the, uh, Nest. the Hawk's Nest, they go down to Goebbels' house and they're like, listen, I put a guard here. Here's the deal. You go in and grab the few things that you want and then the soldiers can get and it's that like 50,000 deep bottle wine cellar. And that's all they're doing yeah. is just sitting at the Eagle's Nest just crushing wine. My One of my favorite books... Fuck, I can't remember the name of the book. It's called like War and Wine. Is it War and Wine? Wine and War? It's your favorite book. I don't know. Yeah, not mine. I, <laughs> I got to like advise the Oracle, <laughs> which is Google. But it's like Wine and gonna, War, War and Wine, whatever. That. Whatever it's called. So it talks about like World War II and the French. So it essentially chronicles really well-known winemakers from like Burgundy, Champagne, Bordeaux, and Loire. And like their whole experience, and like the champagne producers like walling up the sellers to like yep, save to hide it from everything. hide. Same with like Bordeaux and Burgundy, even though Bordeaux doesn't have wine cellars. That's one of the things I didn't know. So San Leonardo is one of the most iconic French or Italian wineries, and it's owned by a French marquee. And so the Marchese, uh, his farmhouse is where they signed the armistice that ended World War One. Was signed in his farmhouse. Nice. No joke. During World War One, the Allies used his farmhouse as a staging for different spots and throughout Europe. World War II, the Nazis had actually taken over his farmhouse. And when that happened, his cellar master hopped on his bike, biked to the town center, and had the plans changed for the basement. And they walled up all the family wine and jewels and valuables behind a fake wall changed the plans so this way nobody knew it was a fake wall and there was a cellar there. And after the war ended, they were actually able to go back, knock the wall down. They had all the jewels and everything and all the family valuables. Funny story, and actually I got pictures. I actually just pulled my old hard drive out of the computer. When he was walking his uh, vineyards about five or six years after the war had ended, he found an allied motorcycle that was airdropped in on a parachute that they didn't find. It was in his vineyard. And he still has it to this day. That's awesome. Never been rode except for him riding around his like farmhouse. And he still has it. And he actually hopped on it was showing us like amazing, like the history. But the only reason why his winery is still in existence today is because they hit all the family valuables. Yeah, someone at Texon told me this year that they I forgot who it was, it was in Champagne, but they found this like whole wing of a cellar because they had to do um, 
some foundation work. And when the construction workers and the whole team came in, they were like, hey, something doesn't match up here. Like, you don't have this whole space, but according to these plans, there should be like this whole other section. So then they found a wall that they ended up tearing down and they found like some crazy wow, stuff. that's awesome. <laughs> we think about it, yeah. If that person who walled it up had died in the war, yeah. nobody would know. Or nobody if the, would know. Yeah, that's crazy. But yeah, it's like this book is talks about that and like what like all the Bordeaux families did to try to save the wine and like essentially counterfeiting their own wine. Like they would take like bottles that were empty and just fill it with garbage and send that. Cause it was also like crazy. It was like the third Reich and like Hitler would demand like 3000 bottles of champagne, like every single day shipped from champagne to Germany, like some asinine amount of wine. That's crazy. (laughs) Not because they drank it all, but just because they wanted to take it all. Like, they would ask for, like, crazy, crazy amounts of wine. Messing with the French. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I really did not like them. <laughs> yeah. So, did you try this yet? Not yet. It's sweet. Because it's an Australian state. And actually, when I remember when I took my Psalm classes, there was one word, or some of the German stuff, I had a lot of issues with the pronunciations of it. And this one that starts with any Erzen, Vogelung, whatever it is, it's the, single, it's the name of the single vineyards in Germany. It starts with an E, ends with a G, and has a whole bunch of letters in the middle. And it's actually, I've never actually seen it printed on a label, and it's actually printed on this label. Yeah. Weird. I mean, it's a... Uh, yeah. That wine, that word. That, I'll never forget that word just because that was a... I had flashcards, and I couldn't actually write it across my oh. full flashcard. I was going to say, let me see it, too. Oh. That works. Yeah. Well, which one was it? The... Starts with an E. Oh, Urgent Gerber Fluligan? Yes. Now with the VDP, it's changed. It's the GG. You know, I'm glad that Europe's not... They're, they're adapting. They're adapting to different laws. They're adapting to each other. They're adapting to global warming. They're planting other varietals. They're not just saying they're not stuck in the rut. And I, I, I do appreciate that. I think definitely Germany is the most progressive. Like Burgundy, Bordeaux, you're still stuck in like the traditions. Um, France as a whole, you're stuck in the traditions. Um, but I just posted articles on my Facebook how there's French producers that are back in the oak off. There's people that are like, you know what? I could tell that for from the 1985 to 19, you know, 99. We had this winemaker, and they used 200% oak on it. And we're done with that because you can't taste the wines. It hides all the stuff. And you're starting to see this globally where they're backing oak off. Once again, Piedmont's doing it with Barolos. I know Burgundy and Bordeaux's doing it. We were just talking. I just read an article about uh, Australia is trying to get away from Shiraz, and there's a lot of producers that are making Syrah down there. Less oak, less distraction. They're making more of a French-style, Rhone-style Syrah, and they're actually calling it Syrah out of Australia, which is kind of crazy, but you know what? They're adapting. Yeah, I mean, it's all you can kind of do right now. It's everybody's going to have to, plus if you've been doing the same thing forever and nobody's buying it anymore, you got to swing out and do something totally different. But so, I think tradition is just doesn't exist. Like, at anymore. the end of the day, it's just eventually just time moves forward yeah and then you get a new generation stepping in and not wanting to do what their parents did i mean to to kind of lay their own groundwork you're right though i think i think you're really right about one thing is tradition is dying and i don't think that's a bad thing four generations ago was the civil war in this country it's really not that long ago but i think even with wine it's just look all the like well-known producers now were the founders of biodynamics and 
not using fertilizer and not using chemicals and now it's the norm. Yeah. Rudolf Steiner? Yeah, just said the founder of biodynamics, I believe. Yeah, just Burgundy is a great example. It's like Burgundy is stuck in tradition, but biodynamics didn't exist in Burgundy up until 20 years ago. Yeah. Well, there's a yeah. lot of studies where they've talked about how some of these wineries realized that with all the chemicals, the birds went away, the bees went away, the life went away. And granted, they didn't have the, the weeds or whatnot they were trying to kill, but the life went away from the vineyards. And that mm. was the point of bringing the biodynamics in because it brought the life back to the vineyards and the heart and the soul of the yeah. vineyards. Yeah. And it's a living, breathing organism. The whole entire terroir thing is actually a real thing. Yeah, and now you have natural wine, which is a child. Garbage. <laughs> Opinions. I don't think it's garbage. I think it's a niche. I correlate it to IPAs. I think it's the best way to correlate it. Like IPAs a couple years ago was not about balance, not about good IPAs. It was Just about all the hoppy bitterness you can get. How much, what is it, IPUs? Yeah. It's like, how many IPUs can I put in a beer? And it was like, I remember when like the first 80 IPU IPA came out. And then it was like, well, fuck 80. I'm going to do 90. Got well, fuck to 90. I'm going to do 100. I'm going to do 110. I'm going to do 120. And it just became this like very. And that was back when I hated IPAs. I was like, I couldn't stand IPAs because they were so bitter. There was no balance. There was no acid. There was no citrus. There was no anything. It was just, there was just this big, high alcohol, bitter bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> and then now they realize they're like, well, we can't just do that. Yeah. So now you have New England style, you know, hazy, all the stuff. Like, Lactose even the regular and- IPAs are like, Yes, we have 90 IPUs, but we're also balanced with everything else. I think natural wine is kind of in that state. They went from, we want to do the complete opposite of the spectrum of, we're only going to harvest when it's a full moon. We're only going to do super, super minimal sulfur. We're going to do all this stuff. And you get those natural wines that just literally smell like a fart. A, a, a Oregon <laughs> bum? Yeah. Literally on that one. Yeah. <laughs> but it was just, it was just, I, I still don't like those natural wines just because I think it's too much for me. But there's a lot of natural wines that I like, like Brock Cellars, like Sparkling Chenin Blanc, I think is one of my favorite wines. And that's a natural sparkling wine. It's it's practically it's a pet nat. It's, I was just to say it's a pet nat. Yeah. yeah, but it's delicious, and I would crush that all day. But he's doing it the right way. Like I think they're finally starting to come back. They finally realized, like, hey, we don't we need to go this extreme. Let's taper it back a little bit more. Let's find that balance. Let's find, you know, good tasting wine, and. We'll make that happen. But like, I mean, even Burgundy is technically a natural wine. You can't water it. You can't use fertilizer. You have limitations on when to harvest, how to harvest. It's technically a natural wine. I was like, but now natural wine has become this very niche thing that unless it tastes like a Portland homeless person, (laughs) they don't consider it a natural wine. But like this, I would consider a natural wine because... He doesn't do anything to his vines. It's funny how that works. <laughs> so so uh, one kind of last question is we're kind of coming up on time. Um, I know you've drank a lot of great wines over the years. 
and I know you drink a lot of affordable wines. For the people out there listening, what are some of the best value wines you've ever had? Or if someone who's you know listening Austria. to this is like, all right, I have a budget of twenty dollars to buy on a bottle of wine. Where should I go? What varietal? What producer? Like, what's the one of the best values you've ever come across or that you would go buy yourself besides, you know, maybe the Rieslings or some of the things on the table? Uh, I think Austria. Like, Austria is just so affordable. For whites or reds? Both. Like, it's Weigelt, which I mentioned earlier, Austrian Riesling, Austrian Gruner. It's we just, had that Pinot Noir the other night that was killing. It was 15 bucks. We had an Austrian yeah. Pinot Noir Holy the crap, other night was that was so good. No, yeah, Pinot, Unbelievable. Like, Crazy Creatures from Surreal's oh, yeah. book. Fantastic. Circo Vino. I think at AZ Wine, we sold it for like 22. Yeah, I remember that thing. 21, maybe. It was so it's good. crazy. I'll good. order it every time I see it on a list. Yeah, 100%. I think some, I think Italy has really good value in terms of whites specifically because they don't have to pay anything for land or labor. You know, so like that Grimaldi Sauvignon, which is like a $22 bottle, is a killer bottle of. Sauvignon from Italy. Some of the stuff that comes out of Sicily. Some of the Etna Rosos are unbelievable. Yeah. Norello Mascalese. Like, uh, God, I just found out. Uh, I'm totally spacing out on this now. Sorry, uh, we're leaning into that. To big, European area. huge producer out of Italy. Does Barolos. Does um, Fontana Fredda. Uh, Grimaldi. Uh, Gaia. Gaia. So I found out Gaia actually bought land in Etna because they're going to start producing Etna Rosos. But yeah, Etna is a great, great, you know, like value. It, 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 it's, there's a lot of poor areas around Sicily. Yeah. And there, a lot of that land has been paid off. The, the families owned it generations ago. Yeah, they ago. don't have to pay land. So it doesn't cost yeah. much to produce the wine. I think Spain is still a value country. Like even, like, yes, there's like the crazy high end Riojas and, and so on. On Gil so like 15 it's bucks. And it's, he's, yeah, he's Gomez Cruzado, Crianza is like 25. Yeah. He keeps talking about all these European countries, you know? I mean, I think in, in domestically, you can, you can still find some Napa stuff, but you gotta, it's a search. Um, I think Oregon has started to move up the price point, but I think you can still find really, really good Oregon stuff for really, really cheap. From what I've heard, Lake County, but I haven't had a lot of Lake County stuff. Um, They're growing too much weed up there now, anyways. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Mendocino area. Yeah. I had a buddy who bought a piece of property up there, and he just bought a piece of property and just left it alone for a few years. He went up there to check it out, and there's like random people living on his property now, and, and weed everywhere. <laughs> like, he's like, what? Squatters. Yeah. Squatters. I think Washington's a good value, especially if you like Napa stuff. Like you can get really big. You're right. You know, Washington wine for a quarter of the price of. Is there any like specific producers that you know of that you would be like, hey, this is the one? Washington Seven Hills, cheap Washington wine, but it's tasty. Uh, Goldschmidt out of California is really good for the price. Um, the Malat out of Austria, you know, their sparkling rosé is killer. I think you can get it for like 25 Like I said, the Crazy Creatures is nothing. Gruner is delicious. Um, I think you can still find some value in France, but it just takes time. You have to know somebody. Like, the, uh, I think you have to go to different regions. Like Loire, I, mean, I think, is a good area for value wine, especially whites. Um, 
A lot of Coterones. Yeah, Coterones, especially entry-level stuff, is really good. Long dock. Um, there's still some Beaujolais out there that are really affordable for what the price is, especially like the Beaujolais Nouveaux or like the Valache level Beaujolais are really affordable with like really good producers. You we'll don't say have the positive of this conversation right now is there's still a lot of good stuff out there. Yeah, that's you just go out and have fun and find it. Yes. Like just because, you know, we open Barolo and certain burgundies or certain things on the table, there's so many great values out there. You just got to have some fun. And but I think you also have to find your like local Psalm yes. and ask questions. Shop at a local shop. Don't go to like a big package store. Um, I was just talking to somebody today and he goes, I go to this one shop because they know my palate. And he's like, I have a unique palate. And every time I go in there, like, you need to try this, you need to try this. He goes, they nail it every single time. That wouldn't happen going to a giant package store or a grocery store. Like you go to a grocery store, you're just buying whatever's got the drop tag for the cheap price. Yep. Like one of my favorite regions right now in France is Jura. You can get that's what you brought. Great Jura. Yeah. Uh, so our 21 and over party, Joanna brought like a 25 year old Jura. Yeah. That was smoking. Yeah, <laughs> it's crazy good. And it's Jura accounts for 2% of exports, which is nothing. And it's a great region with great pedigree. And you can get, you can, there's some like expensive stuff. Obviously, it's expensive because you're exporting Jura, but you can find some cool stuff down there. So, what is Jura? So, because I don't think I don't think most people listening are going to really know what it is. No, so it's the uh, it's it on is. the eastern side of France. Um, it's essentially for like the basic geography. It's east of Burgundy. Is it a blend of grapes, or is that the grapes? Or um, so it's known for Chardonnay, Poussard, Pinot Noir, Trousseau. Um, so Poussard, Trousseau, Pinot Noir, are all reds, and then you have Chardonnay, which is white. Um, the one producer that you can find in Phoenix. And that's well known as Domaine Pelican. So he does a 100% Troussard. He's a 100% uh, Poussard. Or 100% Troussard, 100% Poussard. And he has a blend, which is called, which is Pinot Troussard. Pinot Trousseau Poussard, sorry. And then he does Chardonnay, and then he also does Sauvignon. So you can do Sauvignon and Jura. Um, it's very comparable to Burgundy. Um, there's a lot of Burgundy producers who are buying land in Jura and starting to do projects in Jura. There was also a huge movement about 20 years ago from local Jura producers who wanted to get away from producing just bulk wine and studied in Bordeaux, studied in Burgundy, studied in Champagne. Studied got, their, got their MBA in Burgundy. Exactly. <laughs> they went to these other regions and learned how to make the wine. And then came back and did biodynamic, you know, organic farming, so on and so forth. So now they're producing very high quality wine from an off region in France. Um, what they're known for is Vin de Jeune, which is an oxidized dessert wine, essentially, for the layman. So I, I think the best way for people to actually try all this stuff, throw a party. Pick, pick a region, pick a town, pick a price point, pick something like that, and tell everyone to bring a bottle. Yeah. yeah. Do that. Go to your local wine shop. Go, go is, to your local restaurant and find a psalm and ask them. Because it is scary for somebody who's never bought one of these wines that's having dinner on a Thursday night to just go and take a risk. That's why people take, they play it safe. You know, we will take risks. We like that, that feeling of when you nail it. 
have four friends over, do a little cooking, tell everybody bring uh, a Jura or bring something from a cool region in France yeah. or bring an esoteric white. And by esoteric, just uh, something other than Chardonnay. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But even like Sardinia is a good value area. Yeah. Corsica is a good value area. It's all, there's always value in every single area is what it's coming down to. Just we tend to, being in the industry, focus on those really high-end ones for the most part. So, yeah, I mean, it's and honestly like gamble. Like, honestly, if people love to gamble, take a shot on some booze. You're get, they're going to feel the same way in the end, but even if you don't like what you're drinking. Yeah, you have to take a gamble on something. Yeah. You really do. But you can find some really cool stuff from a lot of regions. You can find a lot of regions that are unknown, like Jura. And you can also find values within regions of known regions. So you can still find value in Burgundy. You can still find value in Napa Cab. You can still find value in these well-known regions. But you need somebody that guides you through it because, you know, the the, the random person doesn't taste wine on a regular. Yeah. Like Not like us. In season, I taste... A couple thousand a you year. You know, 50 different wines every single week. Yeah. You know, and that's being modest. Well, you go to Provine, you're going to try a couple hundred in a day. Yeah. I mean, you'd, but you're going to bang out 800 over a period of four days just like that. I yeah, mean, when we go to New York for two days, we taste probably around 400 wines. So the, the end here, the, about how much oh. would this be? Uh, it's higher up. Like retail price, just a guesstimate, like 60, oh, 70, fuck. 80, 100, no, 50? It's probably around 40 to 50. Okay. Uh, the Barolo is probably about fifty that I have. Um, yeah, this is around the Riesling's around forty. It's a forty dollar Riesling. Yeah, and you're not gonna find an 04 Donhoff. So, and if you do, Buy just it. just get it. Yeah. yeah, I'll put it. It's the only wine my girlfriend drank, and then kept drinking and had nothing to say. She got out of bed to drink it. Yeah, she actually got it. <laughs> which, by the way, is a miracle in and of itself. Sometimes yeah. once she's in, like that's it. She's settled in for the night. No, these, these are fantastic. I, honestly, it's been fun chatting about this, especially for a lot of things. Like I, I learned a lot of new stuff today, and uh, always trying new wines with people is always super fun. <laughs> no, yeah, it was cool hanging it's, out. It's fun because so many psalms just gravitate towards these fun whites. It's awesome. Like people, uh, it's sometimes difficult to get people to drink white wine, you know, because red is such a prestige, and people want to be like, I just drink reds, but man, I took. People like us, it seems like we get geekier about some whites than we do reds. I would pick whites over reds, easily, hands down. No yeah. hesitation. I told you, when you showed up to the house, you're like, what do you have for whites? I'm like, I just I drank them all. <laughs> I yeah. don't have any left because it's, it's hard for me to keep them because we just drink them. Yeah, yeah. I think they're better food-wise. I think they're better. Not better is the wrong word. I think they just work well. They're very universally yeah. friendly in a lot of ways. Yeah. You know, you can actually have them as a cocktail. You can have them with food. It, they're often they're refreshing. Mm -hmm. You yeah. don't have to worry Especially about the Arizona. aging aspect. Yeah, Arizona, 120 degrees. I'd rather have a white. Still, it's 115 today. Yeah, it's been brutal. <laughs> I just got off a plane from Seattle and it was 75 and perfect. Landed and just that heat just poof, right in the face. You're like, yep, cool. I'm back home. John, any final thoughts? You want to wrap this up? No, man, this has been great. Thank you so much for coming on Oscar, man. I know uh, we don't... <sighs> It's going to suck, man. We're not going to see you for a long time I'm after this. I have to come see you on the other side of the pond. Yeah, yeah bring your equipment. <laughs> I mean, it's a real possibility. You're there for two years. That's what she said. Yeah, at least. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, Cheers, dude, thank you so Cheers. much for coming on the show and sharing Thanks some wine us. and spilling yeah, the truth sure. with us. Really Thanks, everybody. It. Thanks for watching. Thanks Thank for you. listening. Love you guys.